Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Travis and Vic's Drunken Horror Adventures. And uh, I'm Travis. I'm not the least bit ashamed to uh, admit that I'm pretty drunk. How you doing, Vic? What's up, man? What's up? I'm good. How you doing? Well, you know, just celebrating a successful month at work. Uh, celebrating a lot of other things, too. And uh, most importantly, as far as the listeners go, we are celebrating... Two weeks of stark weather. It kicks off tonight, and uh, Vic, I have to tell you, I haven't been this excited for a uh, podcast in a long time, man. Yeah, man, I'm pretty excited myself. Um, I don't know too much about stark weather uh, other than what you told me over the last uh, month or so, but I'm excited about it. We got a, a cool little guest come on who you know, you've been uh, talking to a lot, so hopefully uh, it can be pretty interesting. Now, uh as I said, uh, kicking off things here, uh, it's two weeks of stark weather. This week, we're going to focus a little bit more on Carol and Fugate, which was, depending on who you ask, it was either Starkweather's ex-girlfriend, girlfriend, accomplice, unwilling accomplice, kidnappee. Uh, it, again, it just really depends on who you ask. And tonight, um, assuming all goes well, we're going to be speaking to Jeff MacArthur, uh, who was is the uh, author of Pro Bono, 18-Year Legal Defense of Carol Ann Fugate by his grandfather, John MacArthur. So um, a really kind of historic show for us tonight. And it's even more historic by the fact that uh, tonight, you know, 60 years ago, this very night, sitting in a Wyoming, Wyoming jail cell was Carol Ann Fugate in one cell or in a holding area, and Charles... Starkweather in the other one. So, um, pretty amazing timing on our part, I have to say. Yeah, no doubt, man. I, I don't know if you planned it like that, but I guess it kind of worked out. Well, I remember once upon a time, maybe whenever we were talking about Red Christmas, maybe before that, we had uh, discussed what we were going to talk about in January as far as serial killers go. So, we looked up, you know, serial killings things like that that kind of had a January theme to it. And for me, stark weather came up. And um, I didn't plan the uh, the date the way it worked out, but it just seemed to coincide perfectly. You know, again, 60 years ago, he was arrested yesterday, 60 years ago, uh, to my knowledge, and Caroline Fugate, of course, although she didn't know she was arrested. That's something we'll get into with Jeff MacArthur. Um, but, yeah, uh Starkweather, he, he was arrested. He was sitting in a jail cell in Wyoming. He was on the run. Um, Lincoln, Nebraska is where his crimes took place. Well, except for the one in Wyoming where he actually got busted. But, yeah, I mean, he had uh, fleed the state to get away and still got busted. Uh, and, and and that's kind of what brings us to tonight, you know, 60 years later. Um, I would say it's hard to believe it's been 60 years, but we weren't around in 1958. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But Starkweather is yeah. a part of the public 
public consciousness. You know, he is one of those things, like a Manson, he's always been there for us, uh, for us, and he's been there before Manson did his thing. So before there was Manson, there was Charlie Starkweather. And, and this guy, I mean, as far as spree killing, I mean, he may have been the guy that started it all. That's awesome, man, and uh, I'm really looking forward to learning more about him and hearing more, and uh, these next two weeks should be really, really awesome. Yeah, uh, see, I want to sit here and say Starkweather is an interesting guy. I'm not I'm not totally sure that's accurate, though, because he wasn't that interesting. Uh, the things he did were, were pretty crazy and uh, interesting in their own way. The case itself was interesting. I don't know that he was interesting. You know, i got to get into this with Jeff. Um, I'm always curious about these serial killers' IQs, and I know maybe Charlie doesn't meet the typical serial killer uh, information, but uh, because, again, Mm -hmm. free killer, a little bit different than the serial killer. uh, But, you know, uh, I'm just curious how his matches up to the others. I know he grew up struggling in school. He struggled at work, and uh, yeah, I would guess. And again, I'm not totally sure. I would guess that his IQ was not on the higher side of things uh, as far as these types of killers go. Um, and hopefully, either at the end of this podcast or the start of it, uh, whenever this plays on Spreaker, we will have. Um, a clip from Starkweather and, you know, his last interview, and you can hear exactly what I'm talking about because I don't think he was a smart guy, to be honest with you. Uh, (laughs) I just don't, you know. Okay, so what I'm looking at right now is he had an IQ of 110, all right? So 110 is is certainly not on the high end of things uh, compared to some of these other guys like Bundy or even a Manson, or we could go on and on. Um, but yeah, yeah, Starkweather, not one of the smartest from what I can tell. And when you hear him talk, you can kind of pick up on it. He had a kind of a speech impediment and granted, if somebody has a speech impediment, that doesn't automatically point to their IQ, but I mean, you don't get the impression of intelligence when you hear Starkweather talk. Um, in fact, there were a lot of moments during this whole killing spree, uh, that really kind of sealed his own fate. I mean, the guy had a chance, and we'll, again, we'll get into this with Jeff, to to get off. Um, he could have tried to, you know, plead not guilty by reason of insanity, but him and his uh, family felt like it was kind of uh, better death than dishonor, and he, it was it was worse to uh, say that he was crazy than to uh, cop to the murders. So uh, that's just kind of how it goes. So it is uh, 9.05 Eastern time now uh, while we're doing this recording. So Jeff is actually calling in now. What timing? He is the man as far as timing goes. But, you know, when you're in his profession, that's just kind of how it goes. So Jeff will be on in three, two, one. There he is. What's going on, everybody? Jeff MacArthur on the line, the author Hi, of Pro Bono. How you doing, sir? Good. How you doing? Well, I'm I'm so excited to talk to you. This is uh, probably the most excited I've done or been for a, a podcast in a long time. I uh, had kind of gone through the media history of the things you had done and kind of listened to your previous interviews and things like that. And, and it's one of these these books and these stories that is just, I mean, let's be honest. This story of Charles Starkweather and Caroline Fugate is infused with the American culture, but it's not one of those right. stories that's, told correctly, and that's kind of what your book tries to do, correct? 
Exactly. And that's to me, that's always been the most important thing. Whatever anybody ends up in the end feeling about Carol Seagate, ultimately to me what's been important is at least understand what the truth was and what really happened and you know, and that's or at least what the facts are that as we know them. So uh, so yeah, I'm glad that you're you're interested in you know learning about that and all this sort of thing because it's like you say it's always been told in this kind of messed up way as, as like the second Bonnie and Clyde and all that and it's like well no the the truth is actually more interesting quite frankly so yeah and that's what I was telling Vic before you came on I was telling him how okay Charles Starkweather was not that interesting of a guy but the case <laughs> itself is what was interesting yeah. especially the the Carol Fugate angle of it all and what's really important to me is um to get the truth out there because I mean you and I may not be able to tell the whole truth because we weren't there but we can right. try to tell the story correctly because I I'll make the best comparison before I let you get into things once upon a time we did a podcast on Elizabeth Bathory and everybody thinks of Elizabeth Bathory of as the uh, you know the countess that bathed in the blood of a hundred virgins, but that's just not true. Oh. I hate to break everybody's hearts, but that's right. just you know that's legend. And you know even though this case literally is sixty years old today, uh, or over the last couple of days, right. what you know is probably not true. So Jeff, I'm going to kind of let you set it up for me. All right. Well, and I, first of all, I'm really glad you said that about uh, about based on what we know of it, because that's one of the things I really tried to go out of my way to make sure to do in the book and all that sort of thing. Rather than say, well, my point of view as fact, but rather say, well, here's a, here are the facts, and this is you know my point of view on it. So you know what we know actually, basically, what happened in the uh, in the 1950 or you know like you say 60 years ago today, which my dad just all, all of a sudden uh, occurred to him. I was with him. Uh, we were driving around, and all of a sudden, he went, that's going to be 60 years ago this, this month. Anyway, uh, 1958, we're, uh, uh, the, essentially, the 50s are going on as we've always sort of read them, you know, and, and heard about them, I mean, kind of the, this era of innocence, and a lot of people sort of leaving, especially in the Midwest, leaving the doors unlocked, and all that sort of thing. And all of a sudden, there's this uh, murder spree where 11 people are killed. And in today's world, that's considered, you know, sort of minor. But in, in those days, that's, you know, unheard of. And actually, it had been 10 people at one particular over the course of a couple of days or over the course of a couple – actually, over a week or so. But um, – and then there had been another before. And in the end, uh, there were these two teenagers who were, you know, picked up. And in the papers, it was reported as two of these teenagers were captured – and then brought back to Nebraska, and uh, it was said that it was this boy, this 19-year-old uh, or young man named Charles Starkweather, and his 14-year-old girlfriend, friend Carol Seagate, uh, who had been out on this murder spree, and you know there had been all these bodies in their wake, in their wake, so it was believed that they had uh, murdered all of them. And a, a couple of, or some of the victims were her family members, her mother, her stepfather, and uh, her baby half sister, and so. Uh, my grandfather was assigned to was uh, was uh, yeah assigned to the case or, or basically given the case uh, because the, for um, Carol Seagate because of the fact that she couldn't afford an attorney her parents were gone uh, although she had a father who was still alive but he was arrested on the uh, for uh, drunk, drunk and disorderly uh, at a bar the same day that she was you know that uh, she was picked up in Wyoming so she had no one to look out for her and so he you know was willing to uh, to take the case. Uh, and basically, what was it? Appointed. There's the word I'm looking for. He was appointed by the court, uh, and he went into the case just 
having no real opinion on it, whether she was guilty or not, he just believed everybody has the right to an attorney. To, you know, he, he always believed in defending the Constitution in that way. And so he kind of was like, well, we'll get in there and see what kind of best plea deal we can get or something like that. But then as he sat down with her, he found the story was much more involved than was being reported. That first of all, she had broken up with him a couple of days before the whole thing started, before the whole murder spree started. And that she had left all these clues for the police that the police simply had not followed up on. Uh, and she hadn't been captured in Wyoming. She actually ran to the police. She was actually the reason why the police were able to catch him. Uh, that she had jumped into the policeman's car who had not seen Charlie. He was literally about to kill his 12th victim. And she pointed out to him what was, ha- what was happening, and he saw it, and then the police officer was then able to call ahead and have somebody else you know, chase after him and everything. Um, but anyway, uh, and that nobody had actually told her that she was uh, up for, uh, or that, that she was going to be charged with uh, accessory to murder. And so, you know, he was the one who had to sort of uh, bring, bring that on her. And he, she, nobody even told her that her own parents had been killed or that her mother and stepfather had been killed. Um, now, apparently this entire time, she was at school, first of all, when they were killed. And then she came home uh, to find Charlie, uh, had a, uh, that, that, to only find Charlie there. And now is where we're kind of breaking into speculation. We do know that she was at school, that she wasn't at the time they were murdered. But when she got home, that's when it kind of becomes a the he said, she said type of situation. Um, but both of them declared that she got home, that Charlie had already take, taken the bodies out into the, uh, the, a shed in the backyard and had left them there. When, and then when she came home, she had no idea that he had killed them. And he basically told her, do everything I tell you or I'm going to uh, have your uh, family killed. Uh, and so she had kind of gone along with him during the entire murder spree when he just went around kind of randomly killing people in Nebraska. Uh, and uh, then, you know, and then at the end she finds out – actually, at first she was asking, so what happened to my family? You know, when they were uh, – when she was in Wyoming with the police, she was going, what, you know, what happened? And nobody would tell her until she was like halfway back to Nebraska. Someone finally said, well, don't you know? And they told her that, you know, that they had been killed, and she learned that she had been doing all this stuff for this guy – just uh, just to keep them alive, and they had been dead the entire time. Um, so, uh, you know, he kind of learns, you know, or my grandfather learns about all of that. And, oh, so that was both of their stories. I mean, both of their stories matched. Charlie's and Carol's stories both matched that she had been, uh, he, that he had kidnapped her, taken her along, un- you know, unwillingly, all that sort of thing, until... The police were had this narrative that she had been involved, and they had charged her with accessory to murder before they even had all the facts. Before they had even captured Charlie, they had already charged her with accessory to murder. And now there were all these questions as to, well, how come you didn't catch him because she had left behind all of these clues? So they wanted to, you know, they they were desperate to kind of find some way to show that she was guilty. So they went to Charlie and said, oh, by the way, Carol's saying that you're crazy. And he very much did not want to be referred to as being crazy. So he said, okay, well, let me – in fact, actually, he actually could have given the insanity plea. He was, he, he was very clearly nuts, um, but he refused to do that, and so they knew that would be the way to get him. And he, sure enough, as soon as they said, oh, she's saying that you're crazy, he changed his story completely and started saying, well, let me tell you what really happened. And from that moment forward, he told a different story every time, and every single story was, well, she was guilty in this way. Well, then she did this. Oh, and she also murdered this person, and she, you know, she did that. And she would name, he would get the, he would even get the um, genders wrong. He'd be like, I, uh, and then she killed two women or something like that. And I mean, it was just completely 
you know, off from what what had actually happened. He had himself being an action star throughout of it. He had, he had uh, himself saying, no, no, we shouldn't kill anybody, and Carol going, oh, yes, we should. Um, changed the story to all these different ridiculous things. My grandfather then, of course, as a result of all this, became so convinced that Carol was innocent that he started uh, – that, that he – I started really believing she was innocent, that he wasn't just a matter of, okay, I'm going to represent this client, but rather he became very passionately involved in it and felt very strongly that uh, she was innocent and that you know she needed a somebody to really speak out for her. So he continued to represent her. I mean, he represented her through a whole trial. Uh, she was still found guilty, was given life imprisonment, and so he, but he stayed with her for 18 years until he got, managed to get her out of prison on uh, on parole. Uh, and never got a, paid a single penny for it because he uh, first he refused to take the amount that they were that they were supposed to pay him because he was just so so insulted by the way the police had handled the whole thing and then you know he never charged her a single dime for the whole thing so that's kind of I think it's in important. Hmm? Go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say it's important also to, to you know at the start of the whole thing you talked about how or I actually mentioned, and, and I know you've talked about it in the past and in your book, is that she didn't even realize she was being charged because we're talking, what, eight right. years before Miranda warnings and Miranda rights. Right. So, like, mm-hmm. how would she even know? Right. A 14-year-old child. I mean, basically, the police went to her and started asking her about what happened, which is, you know, you'd think would just be normal. I mean, if you were with somebody, you went around killing a bunch of people, the police catch the guy. I mean, you help the police catch him, and then the police, you know, take both you and he in, the police start asking you questions. Of course, you're just going to go, "Yeah, well, this happened. This happened." You, you know, you see yourself as a witness, not as, uh, you know, an accomplice. And nobody. I mean, there were certain times where they they kind of pointed at. Well, we talked about what would happen if she was charged, and we would happen, you know. And it's like, yeah, but you never specifically said you're being charged, and here's what could happen to you. Uh, but yeah, like you say, there was there was no there there were no rights, or and a lot of those rights happened during the time. That's actually, to me, one of the things that also makes this story fascinating is during the appeals process when my father got involved, that's when a lot of these cases, like the Miranda uh, case, uh, came along. And the, the law really changed during the course of this, and a lot of them actually related to this case. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a historic case. I, I know this is one of those things, you know, growing up that you didn't realize the significance of it until later on, but uh you know, it, it's one of those things you look back and you just realize how important this whole thing was and that, that your grandfather was an important player in all this. Can you do me a favor? And, and, you know, I know a lot about your grandfather just from research my own, but for our listeners, can you talk a little bit about your grandfather and, and the type of man that he was? Sure, sure. And I, yeah, by the way, I hope that I'm being detailed enough. Uh, I'm trying to summarize things and suddenly every now and then I realize that I know the, the, a lot of this stuff so well that I assume everybody else does, and I skip important parts. So feel free to tell me if I'm if I'm skipping something important here. Um, but yeah, like my grandfather was, uh, I you know, he, he, it's just like you say. I took the story for granted. I mean, he was to me, he was just the the, the funny grandpa who would uh, slurp his spaghetti, and, or who taught me how to slurp spaghetti, and would. Uh, um, you know, watch Nebraska Cornhusker games and was usually very quiet, but then every now and then would get uh, uh, get sort of to riling the kids up because or the grandkids up because he enjoyed seeing us getting kind of nuts or whatever. Didn't really see anything beyond that until, you know, I grew up and unfortunately I really didn't truly grow, grow to appreciate him and his involvement in this until after he had died. Uh, but he was, the, he was the kind of person who, well, I began, actually the first chapter I begin with the story that my uncle told me about 
where he because he would only go to church when uh, when Christmas fell on a Saturday because he was Seventh Adventist and so that's when you know church was for them. Uh, but when he did go, he um, there was one year when he, he went with this uncle of mine and my uncle just heard him grumbling uh, during the thing because they were giving out these awards for good service awards. And my uncle, who knew that my grandfather was very much uh, somebody who believed in doing good service for people, and he was always doing things for people and stuff like that, he was like, why, is, why are you upset by this? I think you'd like this. And my grandfather muttered, you should just do something because it's the right thing to do, not because you're going get to uh, get an award for it. Um, and that's, that's the kind of person he was. I mean, there were things at his funeral, there were people who just showed up who said he was paying up my rent. I would have been kicked out on the street if it hadn't been for him. You know, and he just never told any of us. He, uh, uh, he, there were times where, uh, actually, if you've ever read or seen To Kill a Mockingbird, that character is so much like our grandfather. My, my father often wondered about that because he just was so similar uh, to him. One of the things that was sort of, it was a very similar thing from the book in the, um, or from the character of Atticus Finch, my grandfather is that my grandfather sometimes, if he thought that somebody couldn't afford to pay for his, uh, well, for his or her services, um, the, that he would take uh, barter. He would take items from them or something. You know, he would be like, well, you know, uh, have I, you're, you're raising some pigs, aren't you? How about you know, uh, give me one of your pigs or something like that. And then he'd give the pig to one of his children as a pet or something like that, because uh, he didn't necessarily have a use for it. But it's just he sort of felt this you know, tie the, to the community, to help people, you know, and, and all that sort of thing. Um, very quiet, very much to himself, but, uh, which you don't expect to be like with a lawyer, but I've actually learned more and more, especially recently, that once he would get passionate about something, then he would get very verbal uh, about it. And that's where he, it really came out, like in the courtroom and, you know, that sort of thing. So to kind of go back to Caroline Fugate, to the best mm-hmm. you can surmise, at, at what point did she even realize that she was uh, being charged? Uh, you know, when she really realized what it was was when she was meeting with my grandfather. Um, he went in, you know, he had been appointed to, uh, you know, to, to be her lawyer, and so he goes in to talk with her. And she apparently just started talking to him like he was in uh, somebody else with the police or something like that and started telling him the different things that Charlie had done. And so my grandfather just went, okay, well, that's great, Carol, but we really need to find out, you know, we really need to prepare your defense. And she's just like, well, why do I have to work on my defense? I, you know, we're, Charlie's the one being charged. He's the one who did everything. And my grandfather was like, well, yeah, but they're charging you. And that was when, you know, if you can imagine t- telling a small 14-year-old child this, she just kind of didn't, you know, she didn't really understand, and she was like, "Why would you know all that?" But it was, it was quite, you know, quite upsetting for her. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I mean, I guess a, a lot of people. Um, I'll go ahead and get to the the question before we go too far into it. And I know a lot of people uh, always ask this because they don't know the the full nature of this case. So I'll go ahead and get into it so we can just get it out of the way. All right. People's question is always, you know, if if Carol Ann Fugate didn't participate, you you know, why didn't she leave? Why did she had a a weapon at at certain points in time? Why didn't she use it? That type of thing. I get it, but I think we should probably explain for the listeners. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and that's what I'm starting to realize. I I guess I didn't go as much into it for those people who don't know the 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 story so much. Yeah, like I say, she he showed up at her house. She goes home. They disappear for a, a period of time, and then, yeah, they, they 
there are a bunch of bodies in their wake, and then when she's uh, found, um, they, they go after Charlie, but they do find her during her story, I mean, her own story of it involves times when, uh, you know, when he was taking a nap or, you know, when there were a couple times when she uh, uh, had a gun in her hand and, and um, it was even a time when she pointed at one of the victims and said, go ahead, you know, follow Charlie to where, you know, where it's going. So people point at that and say, hey, well, why didn't she either try to escape? Why didn't she use the gun? You know, all sort of thing. Now, the, the case of the gun, actually, there were two times when she had one. One was before she had seen him kill anybody. And, you know, it's just there's somebody who's shown up. And, yes, logically, you, you know, there are certain points where you'd go, hey, why don't you use that? Why don't you – or at least tell the person to you know, do something. And those are valid questions, and those are the, the questions where when somebody uses it, I'm like, okay, you know, it makes some sense. You do have to take into account the fact that she's 14 year old, years old, the fact that she's not, uh, you know, com- completely using her logic at all times. Uh, and then after the, the only other time that she had a gun in her hand was after she had seen, you know, several people killed. He handed one to her, and she didn't use it. But the, it's in retrospect, looking back, uh, based on the evidence, it's better in her, for her case that she didn't because it turns out it was jammed and unloaded. I think she she kind of knew it was unloaded because. It was a shotgun, and he had used both of the shots. But if she had tried to use it, it would have, even if it was loaded, it would have just gone click, and he just simply would have shot her and probably you know some other people you know around him that they were near at the time. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, and then there were some times where okay, well, there wasn't somebody around. Why didn't she escape at that time or whatever? Uh, and what my grandfather always claimed was that she was uh, was, was that she was psychologically kidnapped at that point that she you know couldn't escape in her mind and that is also exemplified by there was one other person along the the road or the, there was uh there was one time when they were in this house where they had uh, a so there jeff i think jeff might have run into some phone issues Vic, can you hear me okay Vic? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think I think Jeff's phone might have run into issues. Jeff, if if you can't if you can hear me still, call back in because you're on verge. Yeah, he's gonna call right back. Anyway, so uh, yeah, so basically he's setting it up for us as you know the legend or or whatever's been told is that you know this was the modern day Bonnie and Clyde uh, from the night. Well, maybe not modern day, but 50, sixty years ago, modern day. And uh, what you've been told about this maybe isn't true uh, because uh, there's other facts to it that, that, that people have just not talked about. And because it gets ingrained, just like the Elizabeth Bathory story, in, in the public consciousness, and people just spread the same thing. I mean, Vic, how many times do you talk to people about cases like this and they just don't know what they're talking about? They think they do, but they don't. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like an everyday thing. Yeah, exactly. All right, Jeff's uh, back on the line. He's just trying to get logged in here, and he'll be here. Hey, Jeff. Hey, hey, sorry about sorry that. Sorry about that. I, I guess we <laughs> ran into phone issues, but anyway. Okay. So anyway, you're you're continuing your story uh, about Carol and just kind of her, well, I guess opportunities there, and her the the way this it took a mental toll on her, uh, and that she was, um, she, she had no choice in her own mind at this point. Yeah, well, I mean, like my grandfather, his view was that yeah, she she was sort of mentally kidnapped, and this was exemplified through one of the victims named Clara Ward when they were in her house. 
this was a middle-aged 40-something-year-old woman uh, who she was away from Charlie for something like 40 minutes or something like that. Upstairs, there's big windows, even a working telephone, and yet she didn't use them. Now, does that mean that she was involved in the murder? You know, does that mean that she was complicit in helping him, you know, that sort of thing? No, of course not. There's no way that anybody would, you know, would accuse her of doing that, especially because she ended up being killed by Charlie. But that's the thing is it, that's what, uh, what fear does to you. No matter how much you say, oh, I'd be the hero, I'd do that, I'd do this, fear ends up taking hold of you in ways that you don't expect it to. And this is, fa- this is uh, especially when someone's a child, and this has come out a number of times since then. I mean, one of the most recent and most obvious examples is Elizabeth Smart, who was with her captors for months, far longer than Carol was, and, you know, had, in retrospect, there were moments where she could have uh, escaped, but in her mind she was just so, you know, captive to him. And, I mean, in Carol's case, for the most part, there really weren't many times when she could have escaped. Uh, when they were on the road, that whole thing happened in the, over the course of about 48 hours. So he was on he was on her just about the entire time, and when they were at her home before they left, uh, that's something I guess I didn't explain at the beginning for those who don't know the story too well. When she came home, found Charlie there, they stayed at her home for something around a week. They basically disappeared there, uh, and then it was about a week later that they left. And it was family members kept wondering well, where they were, and you know would go to the door and ask what was going on. Carol would always show up and you know say everyone's sick with the flu, go away. But she would have her hand at her mouth, and she'd like be pointing to the side, like something's over there. But she would just sort of, you know, have her ma- hand by her mouth, like she was covering it and like coughing or whatever. Um, and anyway, uh, what her claim was was that Charlie would tie her down at night while he was sleeping. And sure enough, when he was when she was found, she had red, you know, marks on her arms where you know where she would have been tied down. Uh, that you know that revealed that. So. She really didn't have very many opportunities. There were uh, admittedly some, but at those times, you know, again, when you look at the when you look at other people around there, other people didn't run when they, you know, when they knew what was going on and had the chance. And we're expecting more from this 14-year-old child than we were, than we are from, you know, older people. That sort of thing. That's a good point too. And you know, I need to again reiterate that point. 14 years old Right. You know, multiple people murdered, um, doesn't know what's going on with their family. And, you know, whenever I think about this case, and I've thought about it from all angles, I just continue to try. And it's not easy to put myself in the the shoes of a 14-year-old. You know, even in myself as a 14-year-old, we're talking, you know, over two decades ago. So it's not an easy thing to think about. And it's not an easy way to, to try to put yourself in that world. So, I mean, we can't understand whatsoever what Carol was thinking at that point. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I, I, I do find fascinating is the the note that she left on her door. And you kind of alluded nice. to it with uh, putting her hand over her mouth and just giving clues as to what was going on. Maybe people were dense and weren't catching on to it. Which <laughs> by the, that probably happens way too much in the real world or in the modern world, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. but the flu note, talk a little bit about that. Well, yeah, when uh, people showed up at the door starting to go, you know, well, what's going on? They found a note on the door that said, everyone is sick with the flu. Uh, go away, everyone's sick with the flu. Miss Bartlett, and Miss Bartlett was underlined three times. Uh, and the reason why that's significant is because she went by Fugate because that was her mother's, that was, she was the child of her mother's first marriage. Uh, her mother went by Mrs. Bartlett because that was the, you know, name of her current husband. 
Uh, so the only Miss Bartlett in the house was the two-year-old little baby. Uh, and so, you know, the other family members got it. Both her family, this is one of the things that's crazy too, is even a lot of people who know the case don't actually know that Charlie's family went there too. His brother and his sister both showed up at the house at different times, saw the note, you know, asked what was going on, saw Carol, Carol was saying about the, you know, everyone's sick, go away, was, you know, looking at them through a window saying that. And, uh, but in every case, or yeah, in, in every case, they were like, they got that that was a clue, they, that Carol was, had left that as a note, as a clue to, for something to happen, that something was going on. And so they all went from her, grand, you know, it was her grandmother, his brother, his sister, uh, her stepbrother, no, no, I'm sorry, brother-in-law, Carol's brother-in-law, they all saw the note and they all went to the police saying, hey, something's going, over, going on over there, go check it out. And the police just blew them off, kept, just kept saying, no, you're, you're crazy, nothing's going on, all that sort of thing. Finally, uh, the grandmother got one of the police to just go over there and check it out. They, you know, he, she answered the door, it was all done exactly, you know, everything kind of happened exactly as people had said. Um, and... Uh, and the police officer wouldn't put, you know, grandmother was like, you need to go in there, you need to push your way in, and he was like, no, no, I'm, you know, stop bothering them. And as he drove her back home, that police officer just literally just called the old woman crazy, said, you're crazy, stop interfering with your family's life. Uh, when the, the uh, was it the brother and, uh, Carl, Charlie's brother and Carol's brother-in-law also managed to get a police officer to go out there. He went with them, you know, that officer went with them, gets the same thing from, you know, Carol sees the note and all that sort of thing, and the, the two guys are like, look at that note, and, you know, they're, the guy's like, the police officer's like, oh, you're crazy, leaves. The, um, then the brother and, bro, uh, and brother-in-law actually broke into the house uh, went and ended up in the backyard and saw the, uh, the shack and found the bodies back in the shack, and actually the two-year-old baby uh, half-sister had been thrown down in the, um, the outhouse. Uh, and they said, we just found three. They called the police and said, we just found three bodies. Now will you come out here? And then the police go out there, and that's what they find. They're you know, investigating that. And by that time, Charlie and Carol were gone. Charlie, went, he got spooked when the police officer had come with the grandmother. And that's when they went out, and they were driving around. And, that, and he was already killing more people along the, uh, you know, along the way, just randomly going around killing some people while they were going to the house. Uh, to investigate, you know, by the time they finally got there and were investigating it. Um, and while the murder spree was going on, uh, Charlie actually drove right by the police several times, and they just didn't, didn't pick up on it, didn't recognize them. Uh, she, you know, Carol, at one point, she threw some books. Uh, one of the victims was, was a teenage girl. Carol got her books, threw them out the window to show the police where they were going. The police found the books, and took it to mean they went literally the exact opposite direction. You know, it's just, it's, and it's an exercise in utter stupidity. And the police knew, I mean, it really what happened is that the uh, uh, county attorney, uh, Elmer Scheel, knew that the police had screwed up, but rather than admitting that, and there was actually a federal investigation on the Lincoln Police Department, or on the Nebraska Police Department, uh, Sheriff's Department as well, to find out, well, why did you guys miss this? And why did you miss the first murder that happened a month ago? And rather than just admitting, yeah, we screwed up, we weren't prepared for this size of a thing, you know, that sort of thing, instead they used the 14-year-old girl as the scapegoat and, you know, to kind of shut her up from saying, hey, I left these clues. They were just like, oh, she's, she was his uh, accomplice kind of a thing. Yeah, absolutely. And then to shut down another argument, one of the things that I, I was curious about is, you know, in, in the things that you've read and the things that you've come across in your research, um, now, if I understand this correctly, you know, 
when they were in the house for those days, in Carol's house, she uh-huh. was under the impression that her family had basically been kidnapped by accomplices of, of Charlie's. Right. And uh, obviously Charlie had cleaned up the mess that he had made. Is there any kind of, I don't know, documentation as to how well he cleaned it up? And the only reason I asked, I asked this is because Charlie, he didn't seem like the brightest person. And so his cleanup, I always wondered how good it could have been for him to actually fool her in, in that whole uh, situation. And that is a very good question because that, that, that's one thing that always – and I was never able to figure out myself and understand because he clearly apparently had done a very uh, thorough cleanup job because it wasn't just her who didn't uh, say anything. One of the parts that I'm skipping over – and again, I, I, I apologize for jumping so much with the story, but there's so many – there's so many details to this that I'm, you know, and I know we're limited on time, but, uh, you know, when I was telling you about the whole thing about the, you know, grandmother brought uh, one of the police officers and then, you know, he took her back. That was when Charlie and Carol left, left the house. And then when uh, the brother and, uh, and the stepbrother, or I mean the brother and the, the brother-in-law brought a police officer uh, over, that, that officer actually didn't just directly leave with them. He actually did climb in a window and walked around and then w- walked back out the front uh, door, and he said, I don't, didn't find anything. Well, that officer, in his report, said that the only thing he saw that or actually described what it looked like, and he saw no blood, no evidence that anything had happened, uh, except the one thing that he'd seen that was odd was there was a barrel, uh, there, yeah, there was a barrel of a shotgun. So apparently there had been a shotgun that had been sawed off and was placed on top of the television. Now, he didn't find that suspicious for some reason, which is odd, but he himself said, well, there's no, you know, no blood, never saw anything. Um, later on, his boss tried to cover up for him by, by changing the report and saying there was blood everywhere, but then that, my grandfather immediately jumped on that and went, wait a minute, if there was blood everywhere, why didn't you do anything? You look even more incompetent now, and that's when they went, well, yeah, I, I had altered the, you know, the report or whatever. So how Charlie got it all cleaned up, I have no idea, because he did shoot uh, the mother and uh, stepfather in the house, and then he uh, stabbed the two-year-old little girl inside the house too, and he killed her there. So how he got it so well cleaned up is is sort of odd to me, but it's I've never no, but apparently factually that's the case. The uh, the police reports themselves say they never found you know anything, any you know blood sitting around inside the house. So he apparently did a good job of that one thing. I don't know why or how, but. Anyway. Yeah, and then also he he didn't exactly have the bodies far away. That was the other thing too. They were basically in the backyard, right? Right. And yeah, there was a shack, a chicken coop actually. So it was far enough that the smell. I mean, they had, it was intentionally far away enough that smells would not carry too well in the house because it's a chicken coop, and you know, so you don't want that to be walking to the house too much. Um, but yeah, they, you know, so that was, they were far away for that, so he couldn't see. Some people have said though that it was impossible for him to have carried them out there on his own, and that is absolute nonsense because I mean he was a strong guy. He was actually a garbage man, and in those days, being a garbage man meant more strength than today because like today you you have the special you know garbage trucks where it's you know knee, uh, the the entrance to the the back is like knee high, but back then they were just pickup trucks, so you had to be able to pick up a huge you know all those. Uh, you know, big, heavy, you know, whatever they were throwing out and throw them over your head into the, you know, into the pickup or whatever it was. So this guy was used to carrying heavy things on his own. He had no problem doing that without Carol's help. I mean, Carol wouldn't have been any help. She couldn't even lift uh, the shotgun. This was actually witness, witnesses of some of Charlie's friends 
later witnessed uh, that Carol, when he when she would go out hunting with them, she could not even hold the gun up very well. Like she couldn't hold keep hold it up and keep it steady because uh, she was just not strong enough. So this is a very very uh, weak girl. Yeah, and Charlie was a small guy too. Um, how how right. small was Carol? I mean, if you had your guesses, I don't know if you have the actual statistics, but I mean, if Charlie's a small guy and she's smaller than him, how small was she? Yeah, you know, I, I have it in the book somewhere. I think I have it in the book. She's something like four or five or something like that. I mean, she was not just fourteen; she was short for a fourteen-year-old. I mean, she was you know very close to being what you refer to as a small person. Um, yeah. I mean, to this day, she's really tiny. Yeah, I was going to say, the, the only time they said she looked older was because, you know, some of the, well, her her facial features looked a little older, but, you know, uh, I guess we can get into this, but, you know, oh, yeah. your uh, grandfather had to get into uh, a situation where he had to try the case through the media, and I don't mean that literally, but, you know, right. the prosecution forced that on them, so I guess we'll go ahead and start with the kind of the 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 tricks that the prosecution used to uh, kind of try the case in the media and how your grandfather responded. Yeah, yeah, that's a really, I'm glad you bring that up because that to me is a very important part of the story. Um, so yeah, I mean, before it was even done, the police are are utilizing, actually particularly the uh, county attorney, Elmer Scheel, uh, you know, because they go to them asking questions, again, this is the 1950s, so the word of the police is the word of God. So whatever they're saying, you know, they're just saying, well, this is what happened, that sort of thing. So they're, you know, they're essentially telling the papers and, and all that uh, that she was, you know, uh, accomplice and these the, here's what happened, et cetera, et cetera. And they were actually closing her off from being able to talk to the media. When, if you see the, any of the photos from that time, when it, you know, big headlines say Carol Fugate captured and shows her in a car, you'll notice the windows are always closed. Part of that reason was they didn't want anybody revealing to her that she was being charged with accessory to murder. In fact, there are some of those where she's smiling and people are like, oh, look at that murderess. She's She's smiling how evil of her, but when you look from her point of view, she thinks she's been rescued and has no idea she's being charged. You know, she's just coming back being like, oh, thank God, I'm, you know, this nightmare is over. Um, And so, but, you know, and they wouldn't let her see any newspapers or any of the headlines. So they're basically portraying her as this monster who came back smiling from this murder spree, et cetera, et cetera. My grandfather, he was very adamantly opposed to trying anything through the media. I mean, at that time, that wasn't really even a, a very well-known tactic. Like today, lawyers do that all the time, but he was very wary of that whole concept. To him, it was, should all be factual, it should all be in the courtroom, you know, put it all there. But so much was happening. In fact, there was a rumor starting to go around that Carol was pregnant with Charlie's, uh, with, with Charlie's baby. And uh, so they, there were some reporters who were wanting to get a story, you know, wanting to get an interview with Carol, and my grandfather was so adamantly opposed to that, to that but finally, he relented to the uh, television news reporter. And at that time, this is early television. Uh, you, you know, you did not have anything. In fact, no, none of these types of uh, murders or anything like that had been shown. Had really been, uh, you know, the suspects hadn't really been interviewed on TV shows again, that, that or on news uh, television news channels. Again, this is one of those things where we take it for granted now that it's the television is God and the, you know, the newspapers were, are hardly paid attention to, but at that time it was exactly the opposite. Everybody believed what the uh, newspaper said and television, well, that's intended for entertainment. You know, that's where you watch your comedies and that sort of thing. But uh, this early TV or local TV station really wanted to have an interview with her, and it was a woman named Ninette Beaver who was really pushing for an interview with, for, 
her for her boss Floyd Calbert to have an interview uh, with her. And Floyd Calbert actually eventually went on to work for the Today Show. Um, and Ninette Beaver was really working on my grandfather, trying to get him to do an interview. He kept saying no. Finally, my grandfather relented, but he said, I want you to be the one who interviews her. So in, in the 1950s, when typically women were being you know, overlooked for everything, and, and Ninette Beaver herself was typically more treated like a, uh, almost more like a secretary than anything, um, my grandfather believed, no, she will be the right one to you know, interview her. Even though this was the, like, the interview of the decade, this was the thing that... Uh, reporters all over the country wanted, like, you know, national, well-known anchors, that sort of thing. They could have had anybody they wanted, but he's like, no, you're the one who has pushed for this, who said this is important. You're the one who pointed out the fact that the other, you know, that the other side is saying, is spreading rumors that she's pregnant, so you're going to be there. So what they did was they had a press conference, and all of these news stations from across the country could be there, but only Ninette Beaver would then be able to ask her questions. And so, they, and so they did, and she, there was, the, you know, like I said, there's this interview which actually you can even see online. I've, I've posted it online, and I think you can see it some other places as well, where Ninette Beaver asks uh, all these questions of Carol. And I think what you were starting to allude to as well, if I may just go into the um, the way that Carol reacted, the kind of cold attitude mm-hmm. that she had. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in a way, it kind of backfired because the idea was to show everybody, you know, Carol's face and say, okay, this is her story. This is what happened. Uh, unfortunately, though, before it happened, my grandfather told her, don't, uh, don't get too emotional. And what my grandfather was worried about was that she would, you know, as this 14-year-old little girl, would get really emotional. And my grandfather had seen her being very animated and very upset about things. And so he was like, you know what, just make sure to, you know, keep it in. Don't, you know, they, they might misread it and stuff. Well, Carol had learned from her mother. Uh, her mother had always said, you know, had always been very prideful and had always said, don't let people get you too shaken up. And if people are getting you, you know, riled up, you really suck it inside and, you know, don't show any emotion. So Carol, in this interview, in this national interview that played everywhere, uh, just responded very coldly and talked like this. Um, and all, to make matters worse, the... Uh, uh, the attorney, the county attorney's office, who was, you know, they, the people who were holding her were literally the ones who were charging her. They had had her haircut just before the interview, so she would look older already. And then she didn't help matters by being really, you know, keeping all the emotion in. She was trying to be prideful and all that. But as a result, she just sounded and looked very um, robotic, you know, and very much, uh, very cold and all that sort of thing. And a lot of people read that, even though what she was saying made sense. She was like, I was, you know, I fought him, every, you know, I was wanting to get away, but I was too scared to run, and, you know, all the factual things. If you read what, what she said there, it comes across very much of that she was a victim, and she was, you know, kidnapped by him. But if you watch it, it looks like she's, you know, this cold-hearted kind of, you know, in, sort of in on it with him or something like that. And that's the way a lot of people read it, and unfortunately that kind of backfired, and that kind of really affected uh the the public opinion, in particular the jury, who they who the jury also saw her as a witness during the trial, and again got this kind of cold robotic, you know, even though factually what she was saying matched the physical evidence and showed that she was innocent, it looked like was well, you know cold-hearted killer kind of thing, and that that reputation has sort of unfortunately followed her uh, ever since then. You know, I'm glad you mentioned the jury because that's something I'm really curious about, too. Because, you know, we're talking 1958, and I really want to get into the idea of, okay, so if I'm not mistaken, this was tried 
in or around Lincoln, Nebraska, correct? I, I know they correct. were arrested in Wyoming, but they were actually extradited, correct? Correct, yeah, because it all started in Lincoln. I guess that's something I didn't mention at first, but they started in Lincoln, that's where both of them were from, and then he went out into the country, was killing people out there, and then continued west into Wyoming. So, okay. But yeah, the trial, so, was in, the trial was in Lincoln. How in the blue hell is it even possible to find jurors who know nothing about this case? I mean, you want to talk about right. a biased jury? I mean, this was a no-win situation all around for Carol Ann Fugate and Starkweather, but, I mean, he, he did it. So, I mean, who cares <laughs> at that point? But right. you get my point. Yeah, oh, exactly. No, you're exactly right. In fact, my grandfather, that was one of the, actually the first thing he did was he tried to get it moved to juvenile court, which is, duh, <laughs> she's 14 years old. Of course, it should be in juvenile court, but they straight out, disallowed it, which, again, is one of those protections you have today, but you didn't have back then. Uh, and then the second thing he tried to do was have it changed venue because he's like, there's no way you can get a non-biased jury here in Lincoln, Nebraska, because this scared the hell out of everybody. I mean, the entire every, this is one of those things where you ask people in Nebraska, uh, especially around Lincoln, but pretty much anywhere in Nebraska, uh, where they were, you know, during the Kennedy assassination, most of them, yeah, I think I know where I was, you know, you say during the Starkweather thing, oh, I'll tell you exactly where I was. I mean, it's like, it is so embedded in their minds. It was a huge change. Everything changed at that moment. Everybody remembers vividly where they were and exactly what happened because uh, it was just so, uh, so shocking, so striking. I mean, particularly the thing that was so scary was the uh, the uh, um, some of the people they, that uh, Charlie killed was when I mentioned the Ward family. That was, uh, uh, was like I said, the husband and wife and um, their maid uh, inside of their own home. And this was a guy who was really close friends with the governor, and he had just come from visiting the governor. So I mean, it's like if they can get into that house, they can get anywhere. You know, it just it was one of those things where they just yeah, it was such a gigantic panic. The um, uh, National Guard was called out and was marching down the street. Gun stores sold out of guns literally within the hour. All of the guns guns around town were sold out immediately. Um, so this was a huge thing that affected everybody. Uh, yeah, and there was just no way you were going to get a jury that wasn't you know biased from the beginning. So, so um. Talk a little bit about how uh, your grandfather, you know, uh, I know he, he tried to fight through the media, even though it was something he didn't want to do. But, you know, from there, uh, yeah. Starkweather's testimony, well, you don't want to talk about an unreliable narrator. <laughs> I mean, the fact, uh, and this just proves the entire thing uh, as far as the jury goes and the prosecution and the judge, that, that everybody just had their minds made up and that was that, whether it was true or not is that people are actually relying and listening to Charles Starkweather in a right. trial of someone else. I mean, right. most people would dismiss him outright, but they're taking his words seriously after he's changed the story I don't know how many times. So talk a little bit right. about that. Yeah, I mean, it was just absolutely crazy. I mean, the, the thing is, to me, with that, a lot of what that states is the, uh, the power of celebrity. You know, the fact that Charlie just became so famous. I mean, here's this guy who they all unanimously revile they all hate but yet they will hang on his every word and like other witnesses barely even listen to i mean yeah there was one time i sort of i remember visualizing this when i heard about it that charlie had uh just gotten done with a witness stand or something like that and he was being led out and after him there was a scientific or medical expert and nobody was listening to this medical expert they're watching charlie be led out here's the guy who saves lives you know he's about medicine about you know, uh, helping people, 
and yet they, they everybody would follow or rather follow and watch or not physically follow but you know have their eyes followed this mass murderer you know be let out and so uh anyway so yeah when he was called to the witness stand the, you know the actually the prosecution called him there to the witness stand uh for Carol's uh trial because he was of course the only living person who had seen well actually there was actually that's not entirely true there were a couple people who saw them a, a couple of times but overall He's the only witness to the majority of it, and he was the one person who was saying she was involved. Everybody else said she just seemed to be this mousy, scared little girl who, you know, who was with him whenever they'd seen them. Um, but uh, Charlie had been there, and he was claiming that she had helped kill these people and blah, blah, blah. Um, and it's funny, when you read the, uh, oh, what do you call it? When you read the um, uh, transcripts from the trial, uh, at first the, the, the prosecuting attorney is, you know, asking him some things, and Charlie just starts saying some kind of wild things. So the the prosecuting attorney very clearly starts leading him. He goes, "Well, didn't this happen next? Yes. Well, didn't this happen next?" And finally, my grandfather's like, "Your Honor, my God, you know, or something like that." And he, the, the judge, judge sort of begrudgingly says, "No, now you need, you can't lead him." And so from then on, Charlie's just like he's telling this kind of wild story. Then my grandfather cross-examines, and Charlie tells it like a completely different story. And then my grandfather called him on that. He's like, well, no, wait a second. A moment ago, you just said this happened. Well, no. And then he tells a third story right there. And, like, he would contradict himself within seconds of telling it. Uh, and, you know, what's really particularly crazy is these stories that Charlie told are what have gotten out as the story of what's happened. A lot of times when people hear about the Car- Charlie Starkweather, Carol Fugate story, what they're hearing is a version of what Charlie told. So a lot of these things that you see on History Channel or Discovery or whatever, the source of their original, of the version they're telling as fact, actually has its birthplace in one of Charlie's stories uh, that he changed a whole bunch of times before the court and then changed innumerable times uh, in the court. And this is what has always frustrated and annoyed me, is if somebody believes Carol's guilty for one reason or another, you know, okay, but when they say, you know, when they start saying, oh, here's what actually happened, and they quote his story as fact. I'm like, you know you're quoting a mass murder, a, an insane mass murderer who literally changed the story every single time. Um, and you'll also hear contradictions. Like you'll hear uh, uh, the, you know, one documentary says this, another documentary says that, and it says a different thing. And the reason why there's that contradiction is because one is taking Charlie's story number 59, and the other one is taking Charlie's story number 28. So that's yeah, that's why there's so much uh, uh, confusion on this. Well, I think it's one of those things where this is one of those cases where just like the battery thing that I talked about is that people think they're aware of what happened and they've made up their mind without any facts. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. They've heard yeah. stories and it's kind of like Pluto's a planet. That's what we grew up with. And by God, we're going to fight it <laughs> to the death to tell you. You know what I mean? And I really yeah. feel like... No matter how many times you expose the truth to people like that, it doesn't matter to them. They prefer to to know the story because it's much cooler and much more interesting to them, at least. You know, reality is more interesting to me. But yeah. it's more interesting to them to have the, the sweetheart murderers, not right. you know the actual story of someone brought along against their will why a crazy person commits crimes across you know Lincoln, Nebraska. Right. Right. Yeah, you're you are exactly right. That is exactly how I've felt about this as well. And and part of the thing that's always frustrating to me because I'm 
I think I, I got that from my grandfather, this feeling of just, just at least get the facts right and then go from there. But there's, some, there's like a comfort, I think, that people have in this is what I already believe. In fact, actually, this is how I've kind of come to feel it, it is, is that I think that, that they attach e- their own ego with what they previously believed. So they, they, they're initially told, you know, there's something that happened. And they attach their ego to it such that if it's found out that that one thing is wrong, well, then their own ego has been shattered as a result of it, rather than just simply detaching themselves and going, oh, okay, I was just simply wrong. It's, it, or I was misinformed initially. It, they, they instead attach to the idea of, oh, I was wrong, and I can't be wrong, so therefore I'm just not going to listen to the facts. You know? Yeah, I grew up thinking dinosaurs were closer to lizards than birds. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, <laughs> right. and, uh, yeah. and I still have a hard time wrapping my mind around that, even though I know it's it's pretty damn true from what we can tell. But you know right. what I mean? I think it's the same concept as to where people would rather try to prove something to be false than admit that they're wrong. And, right. You know, that, yeah. But, uh, again, to go back 60 years here, you know, we go through this trial, the trial that was unwinnable. It, it really was. It was unwinnable as far as I can right. tell. It didn't matter what, what your grandfather did. It didn't matter what Carol said. She could have been a better witness, and I still don't think it would have mattered. Because right. you talked about the jury, and, I mean, I mean, this is a famous story, and people should know about this, of the juror who reportedly oh, yeah. – uh, was taking bets on whether or not uh, she would get executed or get the chair. Right. That's exactly, yeah, not just reported it. He actually admitted to it. Uh, one of the jurors made a bet that Carol would get the chair, that she would be executed. I mean, imagine that. You're, in a, you know, you're up for murder, and, and one of the people deciding your fate has actually made a bet that you will be electrocuted. I mean... Why, and and oh, my grandfather named that among as one of I think seventy some uh, things with the case that that were just unfair, you know, that, because he was asking for a, a retrial, and he named that you know that and like I say seventy some other uh, reasons why he should have a retrial, and the judge he, he I mean he didn't allow a retrial, and he named certain re, you know certain ones he pointed out as to well that's fine, and that was one where he was like oh but it didn't affect the uh, verdict. I mean, the, the, the juror actually had a bet on whether or not she'd be convicted, on whether or not she'd get the chair, and no, that didn't affect whether or not, you know, what, what his decision was. <laughs> I yeah. mean, it's... I, <laughs> it's I unfathomable. Right. I, I realize, I guess I, I'm realizing I probably shouldn't be laughing about it, but it's just, it's so absurd. It's one of those things that's just, I guess I laugh because of, you know, hearing so many people say she's so unquestionably guilty. I'm like, how could you possibly think that, you know, anyway, I, just, I guess I shouldn't say, you know, whether or not they think she's guilty, but rather they, they say that she had a fair trial. And it's like, no, sorry, there's no way that that was a fair trial, especially when you have such absurd things like that happening. So. These same people would tell you that they don't trust police, but yet right. they're going to take the word. That's another thing that we needed to get into we haven't really talked about yet. The testimony of the police officer that she ran to in Wyoming, it was in Wyoming. Right. She ran to this guy. Yeah, she ran in, ran yeah. to the police officer looking for help. You know, it tells him, you know, he just killed a man and is trying to kill somebody else. And the guy takes her away from the danger. Other cops follow Charlie. They eventually he he gets, turns himself in because he got shot at. Got some glass right. here apparently. Um, but I'll, yeah. I'll let you tell that part of it. But the way his story changes, nobody seems to care. Right. Yeah. 
I mean, it's just and the, the fact that people quote that to this day, when I, you know, you'll you ask Nebraska about it, and they'll typically tell you the story of what uh, uh, you know what Charlie told. And I mean, that's in particular, I name uh, History Channel Discovery because those are the two that really particularly burned me up. Or I'll see this. I shouldn't say just those two. There are a number of other, of others. Every now and then, there'll be you know some new documentary come out, and it's like they, it's very clear they had decided what they wanted to tell to begin with, and then you'll hear the story they tell, and it's as fact, and it's one of Charlie's just wild stories. And I'm like, you know, you guys skipped the part where he literally said that he did a you know double backflip while firing his gun, and then made some cheesy John Wayne kind of line. You know, you, you conveniently took that part out of that story, but you, that's the story that you used as fact. You know, <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, there was something else in there I was thinking too. That I forgot. There was that you you brought. Oh, oh, you brought up about the um, uh, the chase. Did you want to? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mention? Break that down for me. Yeah, this is one of those things that, despite the, the there have been a few movies made on this, and it's always blown me away that they didn't do this because this is a, a chase scene handed to you on a silver platter. This is actually what, what happened. First of all, Carol jumps into the car with the police officer. The police officer didn't see Charlie. He was in the middle of the road, about to kill another person. But the police officer didn't see it because there was a truck in front of him. So Carol's like screaming incomprehensibly. Uh, the officer doesn't understand her. Finally, she just says the word Starkweather. The guy just gets chilled. He looks out the window. Charlie sees the police officer, sees him, lets go uh, of the gun that he was uh, using, just about to kill this other guy, jumps in his car, drives off, and the, the officer uh, picked up a radio and called for somebody else to chase, chase Charlie while he has Carol. That officer, by the way, was later uh, credited as quote-unquote, capturing Carol Fugate. And those are the articles that were, came out and all that, and it's just, it's so ridiculous. Anyway, so Charlie drives off, and another police car chases after him. This chase goes over 100 miles an hour through these country roads in Wyoming. They wind up going through a small town where they you know, have to slow down and stuff, wind up on sidewalks, swerving all over the place. Their bumpers actually, they come so close that their bumpers lock, and they're locked together for a little while. Then Charlie pulls away. They get on the country again. They're going up to 100 miles an hour. There's a guy out the window shooting at Charlie. Charlie's reaching his hand out, shooting back at them. And finally, one of the bullets nicks him in the ear, and Charlie stops and gets out screaming, I've been hit, I've been hit. But that's the chase scene where he was captured. And it's like how it's always portrayed in this much more tame kind of way. And I'm like, history just handed you an amazing car chase there, guys. (laughs) You know? So you threw it out, um, uh, some of the um, uh, adaptations of, of what actually happened. One of the ones that I actually like, because it kind of tells two sides of the story, what may have happened, what she says happened, that type of thing, uh, right. is Murder in the Heartland, that, that TV yeah. miniseries. I thought that mm-hmm. as far as, it wasn't perfect, obviously. It was a made-for-TV <laughs> movie. But as, right. what, what they had to work with, I thought they did a pretty good job. That was one of the better ones to me, because yeah. they actually gave more than one side, and they weren't trying to sensationalize too much. Right. I really, yeah. In fact, actually, we were in, involved in that. I'm an extra in there. You can see, see me sort of back. In the back. And I was actually, originally, they were going to give me some lines originally, because I was technically supposed to be playing my father. But then they sort of cut the storyline out with my, with, you know, the, my grandfather and father, you know, relationship. But um, one of the things that I really appreciated was the fact that they were fair on on both sides. I mean, they, you know, I would actually, as much as I'm on the side of, you know, believing Carol was innocent, my family, you know, Courses, I had a history of defending her and everything. I still want the anybody. I, I actually would not be crazy about a, a, a film that was done that completely was 100 percent on her side. I would rather see something that's done fairly and factually 
so that the audience gets all the information so that they can decide. Because to me, that's, that's what I've always been arguing in favor of, is being fair about it, is seeing what the real facts are, not just one side, even if it's my side. I don't want just that one side shown. I want it to be, you know, show both of them. And that's what I really liked about that. And just like you say, it's, it is a, it's a TV movie from the 90s, so there are definitely some cheesy elements. But uh, Tim Roth plays Charlie Starkweather. He's phenomenal. Theresa Balk mm-hmm. plays Carol Fugate. She's amazing. Uh, Brian Denny did his best job before my grandfather. He, my grandfather was like as different as he could possibly be from Brian Denny. But I really respected the man. I actually got to know him during the thing. And he was really like he, he admired my grandfather and he wanted to do as respectful and good a job as possible. Um, and, and yeah, they all, everybody involved in that was, they were, in fact, they were so, all the actors were so uh, concerned with accuracy on it that one of the producers had to go up to my father, who was a consultant on it, and say, you know what, when, when uh, particularly Tim Roth was so adamant about accuracy, when, if, when Tim comes up to you asking, you know, this thing or that thing, can you consult with us first? <laughs> because he had become, <laughs> like, as soon as he'd find something out, he would go on set and he'd be like, this is what we're doing. He wouldn't even consult with the director anymore. He'd be like, this is what we're doing cause, uh, because this is what actually really happened. Um, so, yeah, everybody was very concerned with doing things. Uh, as a- Most of them actually come to the There's one producer who, who, wanted to, who put, uh, what was it, um, guard towers inside of the courtroom. Uh, that guy was a little bit uh, not quite as concerned with accuracy, but the, the rest of them were very, very... Uh, concerned about being accurate and all that. And it's was, it was really, I think, a very uh, good, fair version of the story. So. It just crossed my mind that you, uh, the man who played your grandfather also played John Wayne Gacy and Bobby Knight. That's, that's kind of a little bit for uh, Brian Dennehy there. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah, <laughs> so, it is. Uh, yeah. Something to take home. <laughs> yeah, he's really, uh, yeah, he played a, a very um, a very wide range of parts. But. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, so l- let's get to the inevitable verdict, and then what happens from there? Because, I mean, you know, the story does not end at the verdict, and that's the important right. thing about your book. That That is anything but the ending. Right, right. Yeah, so uh, in the end, uh, they, they, they counter uh, as guilty. Oh, and r- real quick note as well, if you ever see uh, Murder in the Heartland again, or if anybody looks at that, the, the juror who, um, the foreman, who says, yeah, um, we have your honor, or they, they have reached a verdict, you know, we have your honor. That's actually my father. That was the, the little role they gave him in the, in the film. Uh, but anyway, um, so he, uh, yeah, they, they kind of guilty, and she looks at the jury and says, if you really thought I was guilty, why didn't you give me the chair? Um, and because they, count, they, they uh, asked that she be given life in prison, and that was the sentence that she was given. Uh, instead of uh, the electric chair. And apparently the jury had said that outright first, the first thing they said was, well, we won't even consider this uh, unless the electric chair is off. They just were, it was too much for them to give a 14-year-old the electric chair. Anyway, so she goes into prison, and because she's at this point 15 years old, she had had her birthday during the trials, uh, she's too young to be in the general public of, uh, or, I mean, in, in the, um, not general public, general but, population. Uh, among, yeah, general population of the prison. Uh, and so she is isolated in her own room. So she literally has, uh, she's literally given the, um, oh, what is it called, I- isolation, uh, for, which is usually considered torture Solitary. for people, uh, for two years. She's not allowed to speak with other prisoners and, you know, and, 
very few guests. I mean, her family's gone, except for her sister comes to visit every now and then. But, um, but yeah, so she's been in isolation for a couple of years. Uh, the, uh, the, the person in charge of the prison is, um, is pretty much nuts, like bipolar. Uh, I, I, I mean, I don't think she was, ever, she was ever diagnosed with that, but you can tell, because she would be, like, really, really nice to Carol one minute, and then just all of a sudden just kind of go off on her the next. And that was pretty much the, the only visitor she would have most of the time. Um, but my grandfather, uh, a lot of lawyers at that point are just like, well, that's it. I did my job and, you know, left. But my grandfather was so appealed at the way that the justice system had treated Carol and was so convinced of her, of her, of her innocence that he stuck with her. Uh, they were, they, they offered to pay him for the trial and he just, uh, basically refused it. His partner ended up cashing the check, but my grandfather refused because he was just, like I say, so appalled. And also they had paid him, uh, less than they had paid each of Charlie's uh, attorneys. And he's just like, you've been insulting me through this whole thing, and this is kind of like the last insult. So he just continued pro bono. That's why I named the book Pro Bono, because he you know, wouldn't take any payment for this. This is kind of... he, he would Normally, his, his usual cases were divorces, and so that's sort of what he was living off of while he just continued with this case. And he'd travel out to York, which was like a two-hour drive or something like that from Lincoln, to go and visit her and continue to work on her case. And he basically knew that the only way she was going to get a fair trial was to get it into a court outside of Nebraska. So you, when you go up the, um, the chain of, you know, the, the legal ladder, as, it's, as it were, um, you eventually get to district court, which is, you know, just the district of that, of that area of the several states. So, uh, but he had to first work his way through the Nebraska legal system. And each time he would file to have the trial redone in Nebraska, he always knew he was going to get rejected. And the state would always wait until the last day that you, know, you have a certain amount of days to respond. They always waited exactly to the last day that, to respond to each of the things so, so as to maximize the amount of time each one would take. Um, the prosecuting attorney, meanwhile, Delmer Scheel, who had fabricated the whole thing and basically uh, or organized all, the whole thing against Carol, uh, he winds up going on to be promoted to being a judge, and a lot of the people involved in that get promoted. It's this very unfair kind of situation. But my grandfather just keeps on uh, pushing with that, and he gets it to the point where it should go out in district court, but then the state legislature passed a bill that my grandfather referred to as the Keep Carroll in Prison Act, because they actually had a different name, but it literally had no uh, basis or bearing for any other legal case and had no reason even to pass except that it would make him have to go through the entire legal process again through Nebraska. So he's, here he had, um, he had climbed the ladder, was almost a district court, and now because of this act that just passed, just as he got to that point, he was going to have to go through them again. And so all these years are passing while he's doing that. Um, she gets to a point where she's been in prison so long that she could go up for parole if she wanted, and she'd probably get it because she's been a model prisoner this entire time, never had a single mark against her, which was a record. Nobody had ever had that. In fact, other prisoners made it sort of a, a point to try to get her in trouble to, uh, you know, to break that record, uh, but would never get in trouble. In fact, she actually became what was called the gate girl, where she would let people in and out of the prison. She had the key to the front gate, so she literally had the, the key to her own escape, but she wouldn't use it. She just, you know, continued, and she could have gone up for parole, but she just was like, no, I want a new trial. I want to prove that I'm innocent. And so she, you know, kept on uh, hoping and waiting, and they finally got to district court. And the first time they had almost gotten there, there was a, a, a judge who had said he was going to give her another case or an, an, another trial, 
But when they got the second time, he recused himself because he had a – well, actually, we don't really know for certain, but we think it was because it was like he had a relative uh, who worked with my grandfather. And so he was like, uh, well, you know, I can't uh, be the judge here, but, you know, I'll pass it on to one of these others. And the other judge just decided, no, I'm not going to hear this case. And it kept going on, kept going up until it literally got to the United States Supreme Court. And uh, my father, by this point, was involved. He was a teenager when all this began. And as all these legal cases are going on, he actually goes to college, goes to, to law school, becomes a lawyer himself, and now he's actually practicing, you know, in, in conjunction with my grandfather. Um, and he gets, uh, he has to pass some certain special thing to be able to, to um, uh, speak in front of the Supreme Court. And he becomes, at that time, the youngest man to uh, be given that right. And he, he actually makes the argument in front of the Supreme Court, and in a just, uh, just by, I think it's five four decision, but by one vote, they wind up not getting it heard uh, by them. So, um, and one of the reasons why this is relevant to the Supreme Court is because this had within it all of these important uh, issues that came out in Miranda, and you know, so if anybody doesn't understand what that is, if you ever hear about the Miranda rights, that actually came from a trial called. Uh, where somebody was named Miranda who hadn't been given their rights or hadn't been told you know, they were being charged and all that. So this had that in there. It had basically several other uh, trial issues. There was one guy named Escobedo. I forget exactly the details, but all that's in the book. But basically it had all these other important um, issues within it that were being decided by the Supreme Court. And so in a way, like, why not this one as well? Um, but unfortunately, they didn't pass that. They 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 were rejected for that, and so that and that was as far as you could go. I mean, at that point, she's in prison for life. There's nothing she can do except ask for parole. And so finally, she gives in, and she's like, okay, and she goes for parole. And that winds up being a difficult process for her because she. Uh, by the way, I might be going past what you asked. My apologies, but um, okay. to, sort of, to sort of get to the end of this part, she. Um, uh, in order to get parole, you have to basically show you're a changed person. That it's like, yes, I did this horrible thing, but I'm changed now, and here's where I can come into society. For her, she still maintained her innocence, and she didn't know how to. But she was trying to ride this line of like, okay, I'll go along with what you say. And finally, she gave, when I was going through the the research, I found this time when it, I just find it to be a beautiful. It's it's like one of those movie speech moments where she gets to a point. And she just goes, I don't know what you want me to say because I still maintain my innocence. And she just breaks down instead of playing the charade of I'm guilty, but I'm a changed person. She's just like, you know, I, I still maintain my innocence, and but I have to do this in order to get through. But, uh, you know, I'm, you, you want me to be honest, but at the same time you want me to say these things. And uh, basically she just tells them, look, I'm still innocent, but I'm willing to, to play your game and do what, whatever you want. You know, but, be, I, you know, if you want me to say I'm a changed person, I certainly am in that prison in that any life experience is going to make you a better person and or I mean any life experience is going to change you and all sort of thing and I have become a better person through some of the people I've known in prison and she basically took her 17 years of life in prison life and laid it out as here's the kind of person I have become as a result of all this um but she says but I didn't do these murders kind of a thing uh and in uh in, in another one of those just by one vote kind of decisions she winds up uh, being released after it was, it was your sentence was commuted, so she still had to wait for like a couple of years. But then she finally was released on, from prison on parole and moved to another state. 
Yeah, she basically took an offered plea after the fact. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was similar to that to me. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. We've been talking about the legalities of it for a little bit here, so I'll go ahead and uh, ask about uh, your grandfather's experience, you know, beyond just the trial level. When we start talking about appeals in Supreme Court, that is big boy law. And not to say that having people's lives in your hands is not big boy law, but my God, I mean, you're talking about a lot of work, and he did it pro bono, as you talked about. Right. I mean, obviously, it's the name of the book. I mean, how confident, I mean, from the best you can tell, was he in doing you know, something beyond just the trial level. And then, you know, he's doing it for free, basically. Yeah. Well, you know what's funny is the way that – I was reminded, as I was really doing the research on this, I was reminded why I had never seen it as a big deal because my grandfather and father acted like it was no big deal. And, I mean, I remember very vividly the, the when my dad was telling me about going to the Supreme Court because I had never known about that. I always knew, okay, you, Nebraska Supreme Court and it's a district court and all that sort of thing. And so I'm finally getting around to doing this book, and we're, you know, he and I, 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 whenever I go to Lincoln, I usually stay at his, his house, and we'll just sort of chat or whatever. But this time I was like, usually it's just I would get like little bits and pieces of the story, you know, we just sort of mention them or whatever. Um, but now I'm actually actively asking him and trying to make sure I understand and going through everything. And so he and I are sitting at his Mexican restaurant, and he's telling me about the district court, and then talked about the Supreme Court, and I'm like, yeah, there's some Nebraska Supreme Court, right? And he goes, no, no, U.S. Supreme Court. Anyway, I'm like, wait, 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 stop. Uh, excuse me, that's pretty important. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. And then he tells me about what he had to, that he had to get a special, and I, it, that's all in the book, unfortunately. I don't remember the exact words, but he has to get special permission to speak in front of the Supreme Court. And the per, he has to get recommended by somebody and the, uh, in order to speak in front of this, somebody who's already in this sort of club that's uh, allowed to speak before the Supreme Court. And the only person he knew that that could do this for him was a guy who adamantly believed Carol was guilty and had actively been involved in making sh- sure she stayed in prison. I think she, he was part of the whole State uh, Keep Carol in Prison Act kind of thing as well. So here's a guy who actively wanted to keep her in prison, but yet he knew my dad wanted you know wanted this, and so he supported him on it, and he was the reason why my dad was able uh, to do that. And then my dad mentioned – now, I, of course, didn't tell him what I was going to Supreme Court for, but I think he knew. Um, so yeah, you know, I mean, you're right. It would be, it's the kind of thing that these are, you know, put your big boy pants on type moments. These are huge, huge moments, but yet really my grandfather and father have acted about it, you know, just, well, I mean, my grandfather, especially, he's just such a quiet guy that he'd do big things or be part of something big and he'd be like, oh yeah. And my father, you know, just sort of doesn't mention until it comes up and he's like, well, yeah, I guess that was kind of a big deal, wasn't it? (laughs) So... Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. He he becomes a, a figure in his a quiet figure in history, um, kind of against his own will. <laughs> you know, the, the whole thing. He he just got assigned to a case. He took the case, and then you know you, you just never know where things are going to take you. And this thing, you know, went for eighteen years and probably longer. Did he stay in t- contact with Carol after all? It was all uh, said and done there, as far as the actual case goes. Well, my my grandfather basically, I mean, he was basically, I'm, he's like, I'm open to it if you know if you want, but he didn't really make a big you know thing of it. My father stayed much more in touch with her because he actually remained her lawyer afterwards, and he was the one who kind of helped make deals for different things. Now she could not because of uh, she was a convicted felon, could not actually have like officially be part of movies and stuff like that. Basically, my dad would be the one sort of to be 
between, you know, her and whatever, you know, can, uh, he was sort of the liaison, you know. In fact, when, uh, they, they wanted her opinions and interest ideas on Murder in the Heartland, and so my father sat down with her and, uh, you know, talked with her and actually learned some more things that she had never said before, uh, you know, for it. Um, then any time that anybody wanted to do an interview or whatever, and they, they basically remained, you know, in touch in this regard for a number, basically in, through the 90s. And then I think after that, uh, Carol just wanted to be done with everything. Because she, she still, for a long time, still wanted to have another, like literally, even though she was free, she wanted another trial. She wanted, she kept wanting to prove to people that she had been innocent. This has always been a very important thing for her, uh, her entire life, uh, until, like I say, somewhere around 2000 or in the early zeros, she just kind of gave, gave up on ever having hope of that. Um, she still wants to, but you know, she kind of realized people are just going to believe whatever they're going to believe. So, yeah. Now I know it's been a long time, I, I believe, since you've talked to her. But has she completely? I, I know there was the car wreck. Uh, I think it was right. a few years ago that that happened. But as far as the public eye, she's completely tried to stay under the radar. Correct? I mean, she just wants to live her life and move on, doesn't she? Yeah, that's really what it is at this point. She just, you know, she if she had some hope that uh, she could be found. Uh, you know, that she could change public opinion, that she could, you know, be found, you know, in the public opinion as not guilty or officially not guilty. Actually, for a little while, she was trying to do a, uh, there was, an, she was working with another lawyer to have a, um, to be pardoned uh, by the state of Nebraska. But uh, if it isn't, you know, something like that, then she's, for the most part, has just kind of been like, I just want to live my life now and, you know, uh, kind of be done with it type of thing. So, Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, you know what, what uh, you know, it, as far as this whole story goes, if you could, uh, you know, kind of impart one thing to the to the general public, I mean, you know, what would you impart as as far as uh, wisdom about this entire thing? Is Would it be, you know, read the facts before you assume? You know, would it be, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's one of those things yeah. I don't. I assume you've taken a, some crap for this book, especially in Nebraska, because everybody already has their mind made up. And so when you tell them they're all wrong, it probably pisses them off. <laughs> well, you know what's funny is I have actually been surprised at the positive reaction I've ended up getting in Nebraska. And, I mean, one of the most moving things for me has been I've given some talks, and a couple of times people have said to me, before I read this book, I was 100% she was guilty. After reading this book, I'm 100% convinced she's innocent. And I wasn't even going for trying to uh, to tell people to, that they have to believe she's innocent. I was trying to go after just look at the facts and decide for yourself. And they said that's what convinced them was the fact that for years they've been told you must think this way. This is what the you know this is what it is, and you, you know this sort of this authoritarian kind of view of this is, you know, what it is. And once I pointed out, well, these stories came from Charlie, and here's what the physical evidence is, and here's what the different stories are, you decide the fact that I, you know, gave that over to them is what kind of convinced them. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, to me, what I would impart to people is what I've kind of grown up with and, and what, what's really shaped me. Uh, th- I mean, this story has shaped me in many ways because I grew up, you know, with it. And I've always ha- kind of had this, view where, uh, you know, it's it's hard for me to just make a decision on something just from what I hear. That, that because of the fact that I grew up with this and because the story has shaped me, uh, I've always grown up and up in my adult life, always seen things and realized there's more to it. There's probably going to be more to it than what we're seeing initially. So I guess that's what I would say is, 
you know, always remember there's more to it than you're seeing initially or to any story that you're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, agree more. It's just one of those things where it's like if you take it at face value, you're you're not going to get the full story. So, you know, I guess that's a good segue to uh, uh, tell everybody where they can find Pro Bono aside from Amazon, of course. Oh yeah, so yeah, of course on Amazon, uh, and I think that it's on uh, 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 Barnes and Noble as well. I have it on Smashwords, which allows the ebook to be you know in several different places. Uh, and also as a site, uh, probonobook.com, uh, and that has not only the, uh, the the book and like a lot of the information about it, but it has photographs from the time. And uh, it, you can also find the first 100 pages of the trial transcript there. Uh, and if you want more, there's a way to contact me there and just ask for you know the rest of the pages, and I'll gladly send them. They're all on PDF. It's over over a thousand pages, but it's the original trial transcript. Uh, all on PDF. Well, there's two two books that you've written that I want to bring you back in, on and talk about. Not to say that I, I'm not interested in the others, but two in particular that I want to talk to you about at some point. So can you spend just a couple minutes talking about two of your books, and it's The Great Heist and uh-huh. Two Gun yeah. Heart, because both of yeah. them kind of fall in line with the type of shows and subjects we really like here on this show. Oh, cool! Yeah, you want me to tell you a little about them then? Yeah, yeah. Just uh, give us give us uh, you know a little blurb about both of them. Absolutely. I mean, you got as much time as you need. Well, it's the perfect segue to those because actually, uh, I learned about these cases because of my grandfather and father chatting. It was at some point during the while they were at lunch or something like that during the 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 um, oh, appeals process for Carol. My grandfather just casually mentioned to my dad, uh, you know that the largest bank robbery in history happened here in Lincoln, Nebraska, and the money was gotten back with the help of uh, Al Capone's long-lost brother, who was a um, lawman here in Nebraska. And my father just responded, oh, is that right? And he went back to whatever it was he was doing and didn't think to ask him anything more about it. Uh, And decades later, he mentioned it to me in just as casual of a tone, and I, my reaction was a bit more like, wait a minute, what? Tell me more about that. And my dad was like, oh, I guess I should have asked my dad, my father about that while he was still alive. He had passed on by that point, and so we had no idea how he knew about this or what, what everything was. So I went out and ended up researching it, and uh, over the course of several years, ended up going into doing a book. Uh, first about, actually, the very first thing I was going to do was something about the the. Um, uh, the bank robbery, but I really got into Al Capone's brother. I found up found out that his son was still alive, was living pretty much around the corner from my dad. <laughs> so I ended up getting to know him and the family and all that, and got into writing this book about uh, Al Capone's brother was a, it was the oldest Capone brother, ran away from home as a teenager, wound up being a uh, a sharpshooter, de- well decorated sharpshooter in uh, World War One then moved to the Midwest and uh, became a prohibition officer. And basically he wanted to be like a, be a cowboy out of the old West movies. And uh, he even dressed you know, head to toe with a 10-gallon hat, rode a horse, had two six-shooters, and even though it was in the 1920s, and uh, wound up becoming such a successful prohibition officer that he was known nationally before his brother. But he didn't go by the name of, of his real name, which was Vincenzo Capone. He went by the name of Richard Hart. And he got the nickname Two Gun Heart, uh, and nobody knew he was even Italian, let alone that he was a Capone. Um, he, because he was famous before Al was, it, the Capone name didn't mean anything. But 
there was so much bigotry against uh, Italians that he didn't want anybody to know he was Italian. So he went around uh, you know, as Richard Hart, and then Al become famous, so he has all the more reason to keep his true identity hidden. Didn't even tell his family, his wife and his kids didn't know that they were Capones or anything like that. Um, and uh, kept this whole sort of thing secret, wound up being, like I say, this successful prohibition officer and Bureau of Indian Affairs officer for all these years. Uh, he ended up helping, as my grandfather had mentioned, the, the largest bank robbery in history took place in Lincoln, Nebraska in, two, uh, in uh, 1930. He got away with $2.7 million, which is about $32 million in today's money. And it was by the, some of the same guys who committed the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. They had gotten away, got away with all the money, and especially because there was no FBI, they couldn't connect a lot of dots. So these criminals had gotten away scot-free. But because they had the connection to Al, uh, Richard, who had gotten, who had made the connection with Al uh, a little earlier, he had basically reunited with the family secretly again, of course. He didn't let his family know or anything, or his wife and his kids know or anything. But he went to him and said, hey, you agreed to stay out of my territory if I stay out of yours. And Al said, yeah, sure. Uh, and so he pressured the guys to give all the money back. This was only supposed to be part of the Two Gun Heart story. It was only one chapter in it. Uh, the, the bank robbery part was only supposed to be one chapter. But I started learning about these other characters who were involved who were so colorful and so dynamic, and it was such a bizarre uh, story. I mean, basically, the, the guy who was the um, uh, county attorney at that time, actually, it had a different title to it, but uh, anyway... Um, the, the, the attorney at that time in, the, in that part of uh, uh, um, in, in Lincoln and the surrounding area, uh, basically he ran rackets in the, in the southeast Nebraska area just like Al did in Chicago. So he was kind of like the Nebraska counterpart of Al Capone, only he was the actual like county attorney or, or whatever the name was for it at that time. Um, and so I was like, that's just that's so much. There's so much more of a story there. I can't fit it into one chapter. So I wrote a whole other book called uh, The Great Heist. So The Great Heist is about the bank robbery and has one chapter about Two-Gun Hart, and then Two-Gun Hart is all about Richard Hart and there's one chapter about the bank robbery. So that's basically what those books are. So much uh, rich history telling there, and, and you know, it kind of all has its roots there in Nebraska. Can you, can you just kind of give us... You know, for people who aren't in Nebraska, talk a little bit about Nebraska because I think people just think it's a bunch of corn and, and, and Nebraska <laughs> corn Huskers football. But, I mean, there is some rich yeah. history there if you really pay attention to it. I mean, hell, we talked an hour and a half of it tonight. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's funny because you, here, uh, if you were to hear my dad talk about it, you'd think that everything started in Nebraska. Uh, you know, it was one of those things where every now and then he'd be like, well, that was from Lincoln or that was in Nebraska or this little thing. It, it's weird because Nebraska just has this little – I mean, for a long time when I was a kid, I thought that he was making a lot of stuff up, that it was just a drug. And then I grew up and I'm like, holy crap, that was actually real. That was actually something that happened there. Was, you know, it's just it, – Nebraska was almost like this – well, it's just the center of the country. And so the, as her, uh, and it, it sort of met, metaphorically got this centralized uh, – uh, little like almost like claws in different elements of of our history as well. Um, like for instance, the one that's just popping in my head right now because it's it had a small connection to the Great High story was um, Lindbergh learned to fly. The, the man who flew across the Atlantic Ocean, or the first one to fly across the Atlantic Ocean, he learned to fly in uh, Nebraska. In fact, the airfield was where my grandfather is now buried. It's now a um, a graveyard. Uh, you know, it's uh, 
I'm actually have hard pressed to remember some of the other little things. There's all these little stories that it's like when you hear about, oh yeah, that I mean like you know the Charles Starkweather story, which is the inspiration to a lot of legends and stories. I mean Stephen King's entire career comes from mm-hmm. the Starkweather story uh, because he was so scared of it when he was a kid. That's when the Starkweather thing happened, and it was national news. I mean even international news. Um, he was just very afraid of. Uh, Starkweather, and he became obsessed with them, and that's what it, that that kind of those nightmares, and those that fear he felt for that is what inspired him to be a horror writer to make everybody else that scared. Um, uh, let's see, what was it? Uh, um, oh yeah, anyway, but Peter like that story. I'm sorry, oh, Peter. Oh yeah, Peter, Peter Jackson. Jackson was inspired, right? But when in fact, actually, this is one I've been wanting to. I actually wrote to all these people trying to find out their connection. Peter Jackson's the one I want to find out the most partly because I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. But uh, he, uh, his movie, The Frighteners, which was his first major Hollywood movie, uh, was about two people who were trying to be like Starkweather and Fugate. And Bartlett, he, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and there's another irony about that as well, uh, that um, Badlands, which is inspired by this Starkweather story, um, that was uh, Martin Sheen's first breakout role, and then the role he's probably always going to be known for the most is as President Bartlett, which was Carol, you know, Carol Fugate's mother remarried a guy named Bartlett. Those were the, you know, the victims. So it's just, yeah, all these bizarre ironies. But like in the case of Peter Jackson, his first Hollywood movie that he wrote, he and his wife wrote, is about two people trying to be Starkweather and Fugate, and they, they wrote it while living in New Zealand. So from all the way in New Zealand, they became so... I don't want to say inspired, but they, you know, that 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 story is so affected them that they made their first uh, major movie uh, about that. And actually, there's a ghost character in that, which was the reason they ended up making Lord of the Rings. Because once once that movie was successful enough, it was like, okay, what do you want to make next? They're like, well, we've already got this ghost figure in our uh, in our computer, you know, database or our, yeah, our hard drive. It looks like a ring race. Why don't we make Lord of the Rings? <laughs> Why don't we just copy that nine times? And yeah, they, that. And the rest will be simple, you know. Um, but anyway, and so I've always wanted to ask him, you know, like, okay, what inspired you? Why, why did you want to, you know, of all of the things you could do some on, you know, something on, why that? But, of course, you know, so that was this big story that was all, you know, all over the place, the largest bank robbery, uh, uh, Al Capone's brother. Um, and, you know, you, you always hear about some people who were from there that it's like, oh, that's interesting. Johnny Carson was from there, and, you know, he's, as his old history of moving up through radio there and all that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, what? My, my father could just uh, rattle off all these historical elements from Nebraska, and now I'm, I'm drawing a blank. But if you go through Nebraska history, you run across these little things that are kind of like, really? I thought that was just corn there. But there's like all these little things that always, that just kind of happen there. Um, and I mean, the, the place itself is a bit different than people realize, I think. Um, there's e- Eastern Nebraska is Lincoln and Omaha, and it's, you know, much more metropolitan than people realize, and uh, there's a lot more going on in terms of the um, entertainment and uh, things that people like to do. Um, uh, it's, it's hard to, you know, it's oftentimes hard to put into words because it's not like, it's not touristy. It's just interesting, you know. It's just the, the kinds of things that, that people like to do, and um, and it's just sort of different from you expect. You know, I usually whenever I see people envisioning Nebraska through some movie or play or whatever, it's 
bunch of people sitting around in a cornfield or, you know, just watching the flies get zapped in the zapper. And I'm like, no, nah, that's not even close to what my childhood was like. Uh, you know, I was, I grew up in the theater and we, you know, were performing shows all the time. In fact, I, there were some shows that were, I felt were better done in our community theater than I ended up seeing in New York where I went to school. So, um, Anyway, yeah, it's it's a little it's hard to describe, but it's a bit different than I think people uh, realize. So. Yeah, it, it and you know um, because it's not such a media capital, it, it's interesting that and and this is my personal opinion that in the Starkweather case, and it's kind of the last thing on Starkweather here is <laughs> the the Starkweather Fugate case. It it kind of for me, and I don't know how to describe it any other way. It kind of began. To me, the the beginning of media darlings as far as these mm. types of murders go. Now I know Ed right. existed before that, H. H. Holmes, all that, and we can go on and on. But it felt like this was the one that really kicked off the media storm about these types of situations. Right, that's exactly right. And I mean, part of it is too the uh, the connection it has to uh, when television was just getting going. I mean, this is the first, it was the first televised interview with a person accused of murder. Um, it's the first time that television news started to gain some respect and started to get known, you know, and all sort of thing. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I also find, feel that Ninette Beaver is a very important part of it. She was the female reporter who, you know, who, who covered this the most. And the, just the fact that in the 1950s, the, the person leading this, who was sort of at the, at the center of all this in terms of media, was uh, was a woman or was a female reporter who, you know, in the 1950s, they weren't expected to do that sort of a thing. Um, it was, a, yeah, it was a lot of really interesting elements to it. And, the fact, and like you say, the fact that uh, it just got known everywhere was kind of the first, um, uh, the first of its kind, which, I, like you say, other people will factually say, I was mentioning, mentioning this to my girlfriend when I first got together, together with her and was trying to explain to her that this is a big deal and why it was a big deal. And each of the things, like she sort of pointed the ones out that you were talking about. It's like, yeah, this one happened before that, and that happened before that. Yeah, but this became just, this was the first time that it just became like household names, uh, particularly because this is the, the time when people started locking their doors. Uh, you know, I mean, there, you, you will hear, hear people uh, wax poetic about the 1950s. Oh, it's so safe and so great. You could just leave your doors unlocked and stuff, stuff like that. It was the Starkweather killings that caused people nationwide to feel like they they needed to lock their doors and uh you know and and it became much more of the um you know we have to stay safe and murders themselves feeling like hey I can get on TV if I you know whatever I can get nationally known and and Starkweather kind of in a way proved that by the fact that people were more interested in hearing his multiple lies than in hearing expert testimony. Odd thing, too, you know, that happened in 1958, um, and then the next year, in 1959, was the Clutter family murders in Kansas. So, right, right. You know, it, 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 that was because of an unlocked door, and it was a time, you know, when, when people would leave their doors unlocked, and that was, uh, you know, if the Starkweather thing started the end of the unlocked doors, you know, that was kind of the uh, nail in the coffin to it. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the heartland there has, um, it, it may be a kind of a quiet place, but, you know, it, it kind of brought a lot of things, reality into the forefront to the American public, I feel like, even if, it, you know, <laughs> it's inaccurately portrayed throughout time. Right, yeah, yeah, no, you're right. 
it's, it's it is interesting. It's kind of this quiet kind of thing, but it's got you know. It's funny too is that people from Nebraska tend to have this kind of weird pride. You know, I mean, like in in school, people would always in, in New York, um, people would always comment on you know, man, I knew people were you know had state pride and like you know wherever they're from, California or Florida or whatever, but you know, you take it to a whole new level, Jeff, you know, with Nebraska. And now out here, there's like a group called Nebraska Coast Connection made up of people from Nebraska who may, who moved out here to get in the film industry and stuff. And if you've ever seen the films by Alexander Payne, he almost always makes his movies in Nebraska. Uh, you know, I mean, you have other filmmakers from other states who go to, uh, you know, come out to LA and then they make movies about whatever. But, you know, our, our Nebraska boy ends up making um, you know, movies about Nebraska. So, you know, it is a weird kind of pride that that uh that we all have whether we intend to or not. Even my girlfriend and I who are we're we're not that much into uh uh like football or anything like that, but yet we still have Cornhusker paraphernalia. <laughs> you know, we just can't help help ourselves. It's part of the culture. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Definitely true. That's kinda of how basketball is in our state. And I'm in Louisville, Kentucky. So yeah, I, I understand oh. even the people that don't like basketball they're still wearing either louisville or kentucky so one way or another you're you're part of the rivalry around here so yeah it just it's the same type of situation but jeff i'll tell you what you you killed it well no pun intended for almost an hour and 40 minutes at this point and uh yeah i just wanted if there was anything else you wanted to throw out i mean feel free i just it, it's your time but if not i, I want to tell you to have, have a great night and you know um have a drink to 60 years of this craziness no, I know. I, well, it's funny because my father, actually, the way he put it was that this kind of has gone into legendary status uh, mm-hmm. in that, you know, I mean, you, we always want to maintain the truth, but at a certain point, it's sort of become part of the culture. And, uh, you know, as much as we want to sort of uh, control the narrative and say, well, look, look, here are the facts, at a certain point, it's just like any story like Jesse James or anything like that. There was what happened, and then there's the the story that, you know, the stories that, that people, you know, uh, share and talk about. And some, I mean, you know, there are a lot of these Old West kind of stories that everybody knows that the story, the version that they hear isn't the real story, but at a certain point that it doesn't matter to them anymore. It's just, it, to them, it's just a story, you know, it's just a story. They're not meaning anything uh, personal about it. But those who really want to know the the, the true story need to look at the facts and then make the judgments based on the facts. Um, but yeah, at a certain point, uh, a lot of these things become just legends and they become almost part of the American mythology, if you will. And I think this is one of those. No doubt about it. Well, Jeff, uh, I look forward to talking to you again because you have multiple other books and multiple books that I want to talk about with you. So yeah, Wonderful. And, uh, we'll definitely free up some time. I'll give you a break for the rest of the night, and hopefully you get to enjoy your evening and kind of reflect on this whole thing. Because really, honestly, and this is true, I've thought about, you know, what everybody involved felt like, you know, 60 years ago. And so, to me, even though it's not, you know, a momentous occasion, like this was a great thing, it is something to think about, and you know, because it did change the course of American history in a lot of ways. So uh, I, I appreciate you coming in and just, you know, shedding some light on the truth of what happened, or at least, you know, what we know about it. Right. Well, thank you so much, and I, I really appreciate it. I, I really appreciate you having me on, and, uh, you know, wanting to hear more about it. All right, Jeff. Cool. You take care, okay, then, buddy? You too. 
Take care. All right. All right. Later on. And, you know, that was Jeff MacArthur, author of Pro Bono. And, again, you know, it was an 18-year journey uh, for his grandfather regarding Carol Ann Fugate's defense um, that was, again, pro bono. Uh, he, he wasn't getting paid the, the standard fee after the, the trial and everything. I mean, he, he did this because he believed in her innocence. And what a great story. I mean, you know, a great story in, in that it's, terrible but at the same time it's interesting Vic are you still there buddy yes sir yes sir what's up so yeah it, it was um, you know week one of the Starkweather uh, two week run here um, and Jeff gave us week one and then next week Jeff Simmons writer of Chasing Starkweather will be back uh, or will be here rather for week two so We'll talk more about Starkweather next week. This was all about Carol Ann Fugate, the supposed, I say supposed, because we both know, that, you know, based on what Jeff MacArthur told us, that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Carol Ann Fugate was only a supposed a- accomplice. And, you know, with the facts that I've been given and the things that I've read, um, I mean, obviously there is reasonable doubt there. It's amazing to me that, that she wasn't uh, found not guilty. But again, uh, his grandfather he was in a no-win situation. I would never want to be a defense attorney, even for the right reasons, you know? Yeah, no doubt. That's just, uh, yeah. Not for me, I guess. You know, it's funny that we talked about mm-hmm. Peter Jackson and The Frighteners, because that is mm-hmm. a movie that, uh, that that's when I found out about Charles Starkweather. You know, I was 15 years old whenever, or 14 or 15, whenever uh, The Frighteners came out, saw it in the theater, and there's a quote in there by Johnny Bartlett, which is funny, the Bartlett name, because that was, of course, the name of, of uh, you know, the the first, well, technically, I guess, uh, a you know, Starkweather killed somebody at a gas station before all this, but Carol's parent, parents and uh, sister, uh, you know, it was the Bartlett's, so... Uh, this character, Johnny Bartlett, in The Frighteners says, you know, uh, I, I got me a score of 12. That's one more than Starkweather. And I was like, who the hell is Starkweather? And they also mention him uh, at the start of the movie. There's this documentary uh, that they're playing on the TV that's kind of like the type of thing you would see now where they're talking about, um, you know, these real-life murders. And so Dee Wallace kind of plays the Carol Ann Fugate character in the movie. And it doesn't exactly go, you know, the way that you would expect. So we'll get into the Frighteners one of these days. But as far as the uh, the Starkweather Fugate story, it's just an interesting story. And I mentioned this at the start, and I mentioned it again. Charles Starkweather, he wasn't the most interesting thing about this story. It was the entire drama of the whole thing and the way it unfolded. Because I've always told you, Vic, spree killers – and, you know, mass murder, you know, or mass gunmen, like, guys like that, they don't really interest me that much. It, you know, we've always been interested in, like, serial killers on the show because there takes a little bit of tact and things to get away with. I mean, he didn't – this all lasted, other than the, the murder at the gas station, just over the span of a few days, and then he was caught because it was just too hot of a situation. I mean, everybody knew the, who the hell they were looking for at that point. But uh, we'll get more into Starkweather la- uh, next week again, like I said, so – Vic, um, now that we've done an hour and 45 minutes on Carol Ann Fugate and uh, we've kicked off the uh, Starkweather saga here, I guess I should ask you, man, uh, your vacation's kicked off. Have you uh, 
gotten to watch any movies, TV shows? Where have your horror adventures taken you lately? No, man, I haven't got to do anything yet. Um, cause, well, hell, my vacation's not officially started because i got to work tomorrow now. <laughs> um, have you heard of the movie uh, Mom and Dad by Kent with Nicolas Cage? Mm, I have not because Nicolas Cage has done well, a lot of weird things and I haven't heard of all of them. Yeah. It, it it was recorded and it was filmed in Louisville this past year and it just came out. Uh, Angie, you know Angie, my cashier, my morning cashier, she's actually in it. So really, I'm going to rent that. I'm going to rent that soon and watch it. Yeah, it looks like a, it's kind of like a zombie comedy. It looks like from the, I watched mm-hmm. the preview last night on Fire Stick, and it's up there for rent for six ninety nine. So I'm gonna check it out and you know. I told her I'd uh, watch it, and I'd talk about it on the podcast. So maybe next week I can discuss it a little bit after uh, after I check it out. Yeah, after part two of the Starkweather saga, the two weeks of Starkweather, yeah. we've been advertising the hell out of it. So, man, I tell you what, this is one of those where uh, I, I guess I had a lot of warning that we were going to do the Starkweather shows, and so, I mean, that's kind of all I've thought about for like a month, it feels like. That and one other thing, and I'll get into that with you. Uh, now, okay, so last week we talked to Peter Watts, author of The Things, you know, the uh, the short story written from the perspective of, you know, the alien in the movie The Thing. It's based completely on the movie, not so much on, like, the short story or anything. So, talked to him last week. He was awesome. He, you know, gave us 30 solid minutes, and it was just interesting from start to finish. Dude is way too smart for me, let me just say. I do my best to be smart. He, he blew me away. He's a biologist. He's just smarter than me, I, and I'm intimidated by it. And I, hopefully that doesn't come off too horribly. And I was like on two hours of sleep because the night before was a long night. But because it was inventory, remember that, Vic? Oh, yeah, I do remember that. Two straight days of inventory for me. I know you went through a, a few as well. But uh, yeah. so, you know, in, in preparation for the things, you know what I did. I watched the thing and I listened to the things audio book uh, repeatedly, of course. But I also watched something else that I never knew for sure had a connection to the thing, and that was the Hateful Eight. Now, uh, this was something that I'd been wanting to talk about for a while. And I know I talked to you about it face-to-face, but uh, The Hateful Eight, okay, it's a Tarantino movie. I'd watched it last year sometime, and I remember watching the movie and thinking, this movie, there's a lot of weird connections to the thing. That hat that that guy's wearing looks like the hat that Kurt Russell was wearing at one point in the thing. That music sounds like it's from the thing. And there's just all sorts of things that reminded me of the thing. John Carpenter's the thing, obviously. Then I look at the IMDb page, and granted, I understand that when I saw it last year, there was no... I mean, there was an IMDb page, but there wasn't a lot of trivia on there. I find out that the music for uh, The Hateful Eight came from discarded soundtrack from The Thing, the John Carpenter version, and that there was a bunch of other things. Like, Tarantino showed his his cast The Thing and no other movie before, you know, they, they filmed The Hateful Eight. Now, if that's not a uh, glowing thumbs up to The Thing, I don't know what it is. But, Vic, if you have not seen The Hateful Eight, you should watch it. It's it's jumped to top three or four of my Tarantino movies. I like it that much. Awesome. Yeah, I definitely need to check it out. I've never seen it for some reason. Yeah, it's really good. And right around that time, uh, The Commuter had come out in theaters with Liam Neeson. And I was excited to see that because remember I talked about watching The Gray 
you know, a few weeks ago and how much I love that movie. And I like Liam Neeson as a whole. I mean, he's good in Batman Begins. He's good in all sorts of other shit, too. So I was just excited to watch The Commuter. So um, I go to the theaters and I watch The Commuter, and it feels like uh, I'm watching The Conjuring or Insidious because a bunch of the actors and actresses that were in those movies were in this. Um, and, and it had some decent action, action scenes, but it wasn't fantastic. So don't go, go out of your way to see the commuter. But if you get the opportunity, give it a shot. I mean, I'd give it probably two and a half out of four. It wasn't horrible, but, you know, it, it wasn't Liam Neeson's best because he's getting old. I hate to say it. You know, it's just true. Yeah, and then, even the best ones get old. Yep. So then I, I watched The Vault on Netflix with James Franco. Skip it. it it's okay. Not great. <laughs> it, the the ending's good, and then they have another ending to it that is not good. So, I don't know. Don't waste your time. I give it maybe one and a half out of four. Netflix isn't so great with their horror selection, you know, with these ones that are directed Netflix. But then again, I say that Gerald's Game and 1922 were both good, but those are Stephen King stories, you know? Yeah, so, so yeah. it's not a fair comparison at all. So the hateful eight got me into a Tarantino kick. So I watched Jackie Brown and confirmed that it is the worst Tarantino movie. I don't care what anybody says. It is. It's not a bad movie. I'm not saying it is. It's just of the Tarantino movies, it is the worst one. That's my opinion. But but that movie was good enough to get uh, Sid Haig a little piece of uh, Pam Greer. He talked about it at his panel in Louisville. He's the man. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He said, "I'm uh, not then, gonna say we. I'm, he said, I'm not gonna say we fuck, but I'm not gonna deny it either." <laughs> he's the man. I love Sid Haig. Yeah, he's a crazy man. So then I also watched my, probably my favorite of the Tarantino movies, Inglorious Bastards, and it was still awesome. Uh, so still enjoy that movie. Uh, you like that better than Pulp Fiction? I think it's really close though. I don't know. It's really close. You know what I'm saying? It's really close. Oh, yeah. I'm I also started watching The End of the Fucking World, which is about the... It's British, right? But it's about this, this dude, and he's like, I don't know, 17, and like he has serial killer tendencies, and he can't figure out if he's a serial killer or not because he doesn't have any emotions. And then he hooks up with this girl who's just as crazy as he is, and it's kind of like their journey, and it's pretty fucking funny. But, you know, after about five or six episodes, it kind of lost, I don't know, it wasn't as interesting to me anymore. I'll go back to it. It wasn't bad, but, you know, it kind of loses steam after a little while, I think. But it is funny because there's a random shit happening. All right, so well, one thing I know about it is it has awesome name. That's all I know about it. Yes, the end of the fucking world. There's nothing wrong with that. So then, you know, we get into Starkweather stuff, and, you know, I had already seen uh, Murder in the Heartland. I hadn't got to watch Starkweather, which I assume is horrible, because it's one of those movies, you know, Vic? It's like Dahmer. (laughs) Yep. It's like Bundy. Yeah, it's one of those. So I haven't gotten to watch that. I mean, I would if I had the chance. I just assume it's not good. So I watched The Frighteners, of course. And it just amazes me how awesome that is, you know, as far as them quoting serial killers and stuff and him saying stuff like, oh, Gacy, uh, you know, that that puts me eight ahead of Gacy and three behind Bundy. Oh, Ted's going to throw a fit whenever he sees what I did, <laughs> that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Good connections to serial killers. 
So, you know, Frighteners is an awesome tribute to uh, the Charles Starkweather murders. And then I get into Natural Born Killers, which also is a huge, you know, it draws a huge influence from the Starkweather murders. Again, um, but it just fucking takes everything from Starkweather murders and turns it up tenfold. Vic, I can see why you enjoyed that movie on acid. I mean, I always thought so whenever you told me that, but I'd only seen it once. That movie with the colors and everything associated with it, absolutely, yeah. I can totally understand. Now, granted, I've never used well, acid, but I gotta assume you'd be tripping balls on this. Yeah, so good, man. And that movie is the movie that taught me that you always have to leave a witness so I can tell your story. You know what I'm saying? Yes, unless it's a fat Asian guy and and, and there's nobody around anyway. So. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's like the one thing I took away from the movie and carry it with me. Always leave a witness. I think Tommy Lee Jones was my favorite part of that movie. He was nuts as the warden. He was nuts. Yeah, Robert Downey Jr. was great too. Woody, Woody is so good in that movie, though, dude. Yes. But I'm telling you, I like Plus, Tommy Lee Jones the best. He was fucking crazy in that movie. He, he just went nuts. Plus, uh, Ice Cube and uh, Dr. Dre killed that song, man. Yes, that's the best song. Uh, that's my yeah. maybe top five rap song for me all time. Just my opinion. As it should be. And then I started yeah, Tango and Cash. I started you Tango and Cash for you. I started Tango and Cash because you told me to. And I got about yeah, 20 to 30 minutes. I, no, the stream fucked up and I couldn't get it to play anymore. So I'm going to have that's to buy it or something, which it'll be worth it because yeah. I can tell it's awesome. It is, dude. Like, it is great 80s, cheesy action, Kurt Russell movie. You know what I'm saying? It, it's like and the potential so Kurt Russell movie. <laughs> dude, the Jack Palance is in it. Long, yeah, and says the Rambo's a pussy. There's all sorts of good stuff. <laughs> yeah, man. Like, it's so good, dude. Like, so outside of... Uh, Outside of uh, Big Trouble in Little China, this is what like really made me fall in love with Kurt Russell at a young age. Yeah, like, dude, so good, man. The, just the movie itself is just awesome. So then I watched Patchwork, which is also on Netflix, and I thought it was kind of like Frankenhooker at first, but then I just didn't enjoy it. It wasn't very good. It was about like <laughs> so the like. Yeah, it's not as good as Frankenhooker. I saw a lot of people talking about how good it was, and I don't know what the fuck they're talking about. I think they're, like, overrating this movie, like, big time. There's a few movies that I've seen people overrate, and I feel like it's because there haven't been a lot of good horror movies lately, so people are just, like, acting like things are better than what they actually are. Yeah. I mean, aside from, like, It. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I got you, I got you, I got you. And the last one, because, again, this was two weeks' worth of stuff, I went and saw Hostels. Christian Bale was in it. I wish I had gotten that poster now uh, because he was awesome. The movie was awesome. It reminded me of Dances with Wolves, except there was no humor. This movie was serious from start to finish and fucking disturbing at points. So good stuff. Uh, Check that out if you get the opportunity, people, if you like that type of movie. You know, it's like Old West and Native Americans and all that shit. So check out Hostels if you get the chance. It's pretty vicious and disturbing so anyway that's it for me as far as the movies i've been watching um vic you got anything that's been grinding your gears because you know we gotta get in every little segment we've only got three minutes left but i figure we could uh get in what we can 
you go on this rapid fire stuff, man. Honestly, uh, I can't think of anything right now. I'm sure you know something grinding my gears that I just forget. But mm-hmm. as of right now, man, I mean, I don't know. I'm just thinking vacation. Mind you, I'm going to Days of the Dead this weekend, so that's all my mind's on. You know what I mean? Okay, you know I'll give you something that's grinding my gears if you want. Does that sound good? Yeah. Now I'm gonna t- I'm gonna talk to um, Jeff Simmons next week about this. Okay, but there's a character in his book called Oral Hackworth because I think part of it is fictional, and then you know the Starkweather part of it's obviously uh, nonfiction. You know, it's it's telling the story, just the facts. But there's a news reporter in the story, and basically, no matter how good he does, his editor or his, you know, his boss is always asking him, "Well, you got for me tomorrow?" And that's kind of how I feel about my job. It doesn't matter how fucking good I do one day. It's always, "What have you done for me lately?" Well, you, you know what I'm saying? What, what, you know, what are you gonna do yeah, tomorrow? Yeah. I get that. That shit too. drives I, me crazy. Yes, I feel that. I appreciate what I did today, fool. Yeah. Yeah, there's no resting on our laurels in, in my world. I don't know about you. I know you – I mean, yours is different in its own way, but, I mean, it is a goal-driven type of thing where, like, everybody's always expecting yeah. something from you. But then if you exceed it, it's like, oh, cool, congratulations. Now, what are you doing tomorrow? Now, now, yeah, now here's another goal tomorrow, and why don't you go ahead and beat this one up, too? Also, this is something my dad did once upon a time. He worked at, I want to say it was like Burger Chef. or It was someplace that doesn't exist anymore, okay? And he was working like 70 hours a week. And they sat all these employees down, right, that all worked there. Um, you know, it was somebody above him, obviously. He was a manager and said, we need all of you to do more. You know, we need you to work more and do more. And he said, oh, well, then I can't. See you later. <laughs> and they were like, <laughs> They, like, took him aside afterwards, and they're like, we weren't talking to you. He was like, well, you shouldn't have had me in the meeting then. Oh, my God. Yeah, he's like, see ya. Uh, he's like, fuck you. I can't do it anymore. I'm done with it. I'm, he doesn't take any shit. Like, my dad's crazy. He's kind of like me, but worse. Like, he's the type of person. Yeah, I, I, give you, I give you an example of something my dad did once upon a time, okay? This old guy cut him off in traffic, and he followed the old guy for miles all the way to his house to cuss him out. That sounds like something John would do. Yeah, except my dad is more intimidating than John, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And loud. Anyway, so yeah, I scared the shit out of this whole guy. (laughs) Anyway, the point was he wasn't taking any more shit from him. And I feel like that all the time. Like, why am I involved in these meetings for things that other stupid people do? I don't give a shit. Single them out. Tell them they're stupid. You know, don't put me in that meeting. You know twice as much as them. Yeah. Because people are sensitive and they don't want to, they don't want to hurt people's feelings by calling them out. So they have to call the whole group out, even though it's not the whole group; it's just one or two people. Vic, I, I can pinpoint when all this bullshit started. This this sensitivity and um, yeah, uh, emo bullshit. Right? I can pinpoint it. You ready for it? Yeah. All right. Here's when it happened, Vic. It started when we were in school and they got rid of F's, the grade F's, and they changed it to U's. Oh, yeah, that was stupid. Because kids were killing themselves because they got F's. That's where it all started. Then people started getting awards for shit they didn't do. Also field day. A a bunch of bums killing themselves. Fucking losers. <laughs> well, I guess we've offended the audience right at the end here, and that was good timing. So, because I don't want to have all night. Huh? Do it. 
I'll no, we've never offended anybody. No, no. So we'll be back next week talking Charles Starkweather. Vic will be back in town, and he'll tell us his Atlanta journey, and I'll uh, try not to watch any movies other than anything Starkweather-related for the next few days because I want Vic to have time to tell his story after we talk to uh, Jeff Simmons. I'm excited about it. But, Vic, anything you want to throw out? At Vic Von Eric, of course, is your Twitter. Yep, at Vic Von Eric. Y'all can email us, me and at com. If you're in Atlanta for Days of the Dead, look me up. I'll be there all weekend. I'll set up the most hotel. Tweet me, text me, call me, uh, YouTube me, snap me, whatever you want to do. Find me. I'll be there all weekend. I might even go live for the Travis and Vic's uh, Facebook page like I like to do whenever I go to these conventions. And, yeah, man, let's go down there and have a couple shots of whatever you want. And let's have a good time in Atlanta. Somebody get Vic a Washington apple while you're down there. That's his drink of choice. Wait, I'm so, saying. I mean, like, it ain't that hard. Just give me one. Come on, people. At Phenomenal TLD. I'm active on there again. At Trav and Vic Horror, I think, on Twitter. And then, you know, our website, TravinVicHorror.wordpress.com. It's it's um, up-to-date and accurate. One of these days, we'll get back on YouTube. I say that every week. I um, think I'm just lying to everybody, but I'm pretty good at it. So <laughs> we'll talk yeah, to you guys I mean, next week. Maybe we can make it happen after the after the kid's born, the new kid. After that, maybe we can make it happen. And we're going full raw dog Stark weather next week. No condom, nothing. We'll we'll talk to you guys later. It's how I like it. <laughs> later, later. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.